Warning, the following message may be offensive to some audiences. These audiences may include but are not limited to professing Christians who never read their Bible, sissies, sodomites, men with man buns, those who approve of men with man buns, man bun enablers, white knights for men with man buns, homemakers who have finished Netflix but don't know how to meal plan, and people who refer to their pets as fur babies. Viewer discretion is advised. People are tired of hearing nothing but doom and despair on the radio. The message of Christianity is that salvation is found in Christ alone, and any who reject Christ therefore forfeit any hope of salvation, any hope of heaven. The issue is that humanity is in sin and the wrath of Almighty God is hanging over our heads. They will hear his words, they will not act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment, when the fires of wrath come, they will be consumed and they will perish. God wrapped himself in flesh, condescended, and became a man, died on the cross for sin, was resurrected on the third day, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits now to make intercession for us. Jesus is saying there is a group of people who will hear his words, they will act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment come in that final day, their house will stand. Welcome to Bible Bash, where we aim to equip the saints for the works of ministry by answering the questions you're not allowed to ask. We're your hosts, Harrison Carrig and Pastor Tim Mullet, and today we are joined by special guest, Pastor Conley Owens, author of The Dorian Principle, A Biblical Response to the Commercialization of Christianity. Today he's going to help us answer the age-old question, is the entire American church guilty of peddling the gospel now, Conley, why don't we start by you just taking a moment to introduce us to yourselves, tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your motivation for wanting to write The Dorian Principle. Sure. My name is Conley Owens. I'm a pastor at Silicon Valley Reformed Baptist Church. I'm a bivocational pastor, so by day I'm a software engineer, and I live with my wife and seven kids here in Sunnyvale, California. And uh, as far as the book goes, what my motivation was, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about how uh, the church tends to uh, abuse copyright. My day job involves copyright, and I've been interested in copyright for a, for a long time. So that was really kind of the, uh, the intro to beginning to think about these things. And when I started seeing some things in the Bible that concerned money and ministry, uh, I wanted to study this for a thesis. I ended up writing a thesis, realizing just how much the Bible had to say, and I felt that it needed to be a book. So, um, yeah, I just want to share that with others. Sure, and I, I know that we appreciated that you gave the book away for free, and it's always nice to have free books, so we we appreciate <laughs> we appreciate that. And I, I definitely enjoyed reading the book and uh, profited from it a lot. Uh, the first question I would have for you, Conley, is that you've you basically written a book that argues that basically the entire evangelical church in America is in sin. Uh, so not just the prosperity guys, but our, um, or even you know our theological closer adversaries, but essentially everyone you know every big name theologian out there is is uh, essentially guilty of peddling the word in some way or another. I, I know that that's a bit of a generality, but uh, hopefully you'll forgive me that. But uh, that that's um, uh, essentially what the book is arguing. And then uh, what's worse is that you have the audacity to name names, so you get pretty specific at certain points. Uh, you commit the unpardonable sin uh, of actually 
naming organizations like Tim Keller and Crew and Together for the Gospel. And so the first question I guess I, I have for you is, uh, how dare you? And the follow-up is, who do you think you are? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I consider myself uh, friends with many of the people that I'm willing to name, maybe not all the people that I named. Uh, uh, but yeah, and then who am I? I? I'm just a guy. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things in Scripture where when you realize uh, just how how broad the commandment of God is, you know, to use the phrase from Psalm 119, you know, to to point at something and say that everyone is guilty of this is not really a unusual thing. There's not anything too profound about what I'm doing when you realize that really this is how it is with everything. And I'm just calling people to a to a deeper level of fidelity to the biblical text on this one specific matter. Sure. Sure. I, I guess to ask the question in a little bit more of a serious way, um, I know that there's been plenty of times in my life where I've taken positions that are deeply unpopular. And sometimes, I, I mean, I know that it can be pretty... Uh, it can be pretty lonely when you're reading a book and you're or you're reading the Bible and you're coming to conclusions that you know, it seems like everyone around you just thinks that you're absolutely crazy for coming to. Uh, and, and I would say that um, I know that it should be somewhat unsettling the thought of maybe coming up with something new or something that you just you're all out on your own. Uh, it's one thing to praise guys like Athanasius or Martin Luther, uh, but then it's another thing to conceive of yourself uh, doing something similar. I know that the, the reform motto is always reforming, uh, but then it seems that we have little tolerance for individuals who are actually trying to push us towards that next step of faithfulness. And and so I, I guess one of the questions I would ask is, you know, how um, how are you personally kind of processing the idea of uh, – Coming to truths that you see that are being violated in uh, in a pretty comprehensive way, right? Well, in the in the book, I try to justify from a historical perspective that this isn't so new, and yet at the same time, why it is that we need a greater clarity today. So I think I have some justification for that. Uh, but then, additionally, how I'm processing that for myself, um, I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to think about that some. But I don't I don't think I'm uh, I I wondered if I would be you know Conley contramundum uh, right. the way Athanasius <laughs> and Luther were, and I was I was uncertain about that because it you're right that is uh, that is a reason to be very concerned that uh, you know maybe you are wrong. But I have been shocked at just how positive the feedback has been. There's been uh, the ratio of of positive feedback to negative feedback has been very high, and that was not what I was expecting. I was expecting a lot more pushback on this at least initially. I, I think uh, part of what's happening there uh, is is I think that there is you know from my perspective uh, for many people I think that we're deeply troubled with um, I think um, I, I, the way I would describe it is a celebrity culture that is happening within uh, broader evangelicalism and I think I think there's a lot of things that are troubling to people and and uh, I think at some point um, with, with some of it I think it's hard to put your finger uh, on quite specifically what the uh, problem is. I think that there's a lot of things that are deeply troubling. I mean, I, I, you know, I went, I've been to all the major conferences. I've been to the Gather for the Gospel conference uh, in particular, or the G3 conference, or I've been to, uh, you know, your standard circus Southern Baptist conventions as far as that goes. And uh, there's, I I think there's, there's so much in these kind of um, big events that are, 
troubling to someone who's somewhat reflective. So may, maybe part of the lack of uh, significant uh, hate mail or pipe bombs that you're being sent is related to the fact that <laughs> maybe we all realize that there's some problems here and uh, and uh, that, uh, are, that are long overdue for correcting. So maybe there's something along that line. Well, yeah, but, I uh, think you're right. A lot of the people I've encountered, you know, they had they had concerns as well and they haven't necessarily put it all together. But um, yeah, I've, I've been surprised at how many people had similar concerns as to what I have. I've just tried to collect all the text and synthesize them together. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, kind of turning to the book itself, it seems like the basic premise of the book and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or if I misrepresent anything, but the basic premise of the book is essentially that God does not uh, condone profiting on the gospel. Now, that that statement in and of itself, I'm sure most people there would probably be, you know, virtually no pushback whatsoever. But then you get a lot more specific in what you mean, and, and you try to define a lot of these terms in a way that I, I think is helpful. You know, it seems like the two uh, uh, basic premise or the two terms that you refer to a lot in the book are reciprocity and co-labor and and uh reciprocity would be basically charging um for the gospel or charging to uh teach the gospel uh and then co-labor would be more like people coming alongside you who want to help you uh further the gospel who want to help you be able to go to other people and teach them the gospel so they uh whether it's fundraising or whatever they they give you um financial support so that you can go to other people and proclaim the gospel to them. Is, is that a fair sort of basic summary of the book? Uh, I think part of it was, I think um, part of it, I might want to clarify some. So okay, yeah. Uh, co-labor and reciprocity. That is, that is the key distinction that I'm putting forward. Uh, in Matthew 10, eight through 10, Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons you received without paying, give without pay. And so, there you have his statement that you shouldn't be giving in exchange for payment. And so there you have his forbidding of reciprocity. And then right after that, he says, uh, uh, but take no bag for your journey or two sandals or a tunic or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And so there he's saying, but you're supposed to expect others to support you. And, and Matthew and Luke, it calls them that would support, uh, that would support the disciples, uh, son of peace or a worthy household. So you have these people who want to further the gospel who are who are uh, giving, and so they are to receive that co-labor, what I'm calling co-labor. So that is that is the distinction. Now, a couple of words that you used um, that I'd want to clarify. So one is profit, right? This is what a lot of people, the word a lot of people use to describe this. Well, it's okay to take money as long as you're not profiting off of it. I don't I don't think the Bible ever if if we're using the word profit to mean getting more than you put into it, I don't think the Bible ever uses the word profit to, uh, or not just uses the word. I don't think that's ever the concern is that you would get more than you put into it. Lord willing, if a, if a pastor does an excellent job in the congregation or whoever's working with him, uh, wants to support him and honor him in such a way that he's financially receiving more than what a typical minimum wage would be, then, you know, praise God for that. So I wouldn't. <laughs> so in that sense, there's nothing wrong with profit, and a lot of people will use the word profit to say something like, "Well, as you know, I can charge for this ministry just as long as I'm not making more than I than I uh, put into it." 
Well, once again, if you are if you are engaged in reciprocity there and you're exchanging something for what you put into it, you know, whatever you determine that amount to be, uh, that would be forbidden. So it really doesn't matter if we're using the word profit to uh, define how much, uh, you know, if you're getting more than you put into it. Profit's not the concern. Another word you used was charging. So it depends on, you know, what we mean by charging because someone might get the impression that I'm saying that everyone should be so willing to labor for free that if someone does not, uh, you know, if a church is not willing to support them in the matter, they should still do it anyway. I, I'm not saying that, certainly. Um, uh, so if you want to call that kind of activity charging, you know, to to be unwilling to to work if you're not going to be supported for it, I think that's perfectly reasonable. People don't have uh, infinite capacity to do that. Maybe maybe you can do us a favor and just go ahead and uh, distinguish between uh, reciprocity and ministerial co-labor. That's the, those are the two major concepts there. So maybe if you could give us a definition for them and and maybe some just contrast the two uh, in, is um, you know how, however much time you want to take just doing that just to give us uh, make sure that we're all using the same words in the same way and understanding what you're saying. Sure. So I mentioned uh, the text in Matthew ten eight through ten. So the way I define reciprocity is uh, support, material or otherwise, given to a minister out of a sense of direct obligation for his ministry of the gospel. And that that phrase direct like, like obligation. Like a pay-per-view kind of deal, right? Right, right. So, uh, you know, you gave to me, so I give to you. And it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a symmetric amount. You know, it sure. could be even $1 for something very large, and that would still be reciprocity. And then right. co-labor is support material or otherwise given by a man to a minister out of a sense of obligation to God to honor or to aid the proclamation of the gospel. So when we are giving to a minister, ideally we're doing it out of an obligation to God that uh, we have received this gospel ultimately from God, not from men. And so in order to give back to God, the one that we ultimately receive this from, uh, we give to his ministers. So there is an obligation we have to ministers, but it's an indirect obligation. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 9 when Paul appeals to the priesthood that the people of Israel would give to the Levites, but they would not be giving directly to the Levites. They would be making their sacrifices and their tithes to God, and then God would be supporting the Levites. So even though uh, externally it might look like uh, the Levites and the Israelites are exchanging money and ministry— What's going on in terms of uh, in terms of the thought process is that uh, they are giving to God and they are giving worship to Him, and then and then God is giving to the Levites, Him saying that uh, that He is their inheritance. Sure. So, in terms of recipro- reciprocity itself, could you um, maybe give some examples for? Uh, the people who are listening in terms in the context of the American church, could you give us some examples of what you would consider reciprocity that you see in, you know, the modern evangelical church as we know it today? Sure. So the, the biggest one in my opinion is uh, the whole Christian publishing industry. So not every, not every book operates like this. My own doesn't, but typically the, the way this works is that, you want to read some minister's book, you have to give him money first before he will give you the book. And so that's that's very definitionally reciprocity. You can't even access that teaching unless you unless you pay him for it. And even if a minister does something like, well, you know, as long as 
well, here's a suggested donation and then people are donating. And so it's, even if it's voluntary, if it's set up in that way where you're not co-laboring, but because he did something for you, you feel a direct obligation to him, uh, that would be reciprocity. Now, some other things would be, typically this is the way seminaries run. You give tuition, they give you teaching. And typically this is the way gospel conferences are run. You pay for a ticket and they give you a gospel teaching. Sure. I, I think, uh, you know, me being a part of the biblical counseling movement and, you know, I went to seminary and, you know, I, I did my um, pay for my theological instruction, <laughs> uh, an ungodly amount of money in order to uh, to uh, learn the Bible. So um, I have some sort of experience with that. I, I think uh, one of the areas that uh, has been um, influential for me and as far as this idea of reciprocity goes is within the biblical counseling movement. So, uh, you know, when I went to school, uh, I originally went to school with uh, the notion in my mind that I was going to be pursuing, you know, basically um, counseling, but then using the Bible to counsel. And and the the thought process I had in mind was that I would open up some sort of biblical counseling practice somewhere in order to, uh, you know, basically uh, develop a client uh, clientele and charge him for counseling and everything else. I think somewhere along the way, one of the things that happened for me was that I started to realize that, you know, what what I'm passionate about is teaching the Bible and um, helping people solve their problems with the Bible, and, and and it began to dawn on me over time that you know this doesn't need to be disconnected from the church. And what I'm really wanting to do is be a pastor and everything else. But as those uh, convictions started to clarify, one of the things that was really troubling uh, to me uh, personally was the idea that uh, the idea of charging people for counseling uh, that became uh, pretty troubling to me because it it seemed. Um, very ob- like a very obvious example of peddling the gospel to me, and it's something that I, I didn't really want to go there uh, with in my mind. And it's something that I've I've resisted over the course of my ministry, and and I would say that you know it's been a that that has affected the the types of ministries that I would pursue and everything else. And so I I certainly see uh, that as a problem. I mean I I remember early on when I. Um, you know, was just when I was just in seminary. Uh, Tim Keller was was the kind of guy that everyone was promoting at that point, and there wasn't a whole lot of guys who were pushing back against you know anything he's saying uh, during those years. Uh, but then uh, everyone was recommending Tim Keller, and I remember uh, going online and trying to get some of his sermons and seeing that he's charging three dollars a sermon or whatever it was, and I just thought to myself, well. That's weird, right? <laughs> right. That's that's pretty weird. Uh, and, and you know, I, I think um, just to be frank, I, I, that was the type of thing for me that caused me to basically write him off as a guy that I would want to listen to. It's like, hey, if you don't if you don't want me to learn from you without paying, I don't have any money. You know, I'm broke. I, I eat ramen noodles every meal. You know, <laughs> but uh, that seemed wrong to me. Uh, but then right. I, I don't know. I I didn't really connect it to. You know some of the other ideas that you're uh, speaking of in the same sort of way, uh, but that clearly was those are examples of things that I saw. And you know when I think about the distinction between reciprocity and co-labor, as you've described it, I think um, 
one of the strengths of the book, as I can tell, is that uh, I think that's a good distinction to make, and I understand where you're coming from with that. And those terms, uh, they do, they do make a lot of sense, and I, I think they do a good job of explaining a, a lot of data in the in the text as well. Uh, and and so I, th- I think you know it's, it's um, uh, you, you need some sort of word for the kind of scenario where you basically are walking up to someone and saying, "Hey, uh, would you like to know how you're how to be saved? Uh, well, pay me first, right?" And so, uh, I think reciprocity is a fine word for that. Now, um, one of the things that's been uh, funny fu- or humorous for for me to watch is uh, I I listened to a couple of your interviews online related to this book, and you know. Um, viewed the comment sections and uh, as is the case with the internet people have a great capacity to jump to conclusions as far as that goes and so uh, one of the things i was uh, we were wondering if you could do for us would be to you know, maybe put some jumpy people at ease as far as that goes and so um one of the questions we had along those lines is uh, you know is it wrong to give pastors a salary in any way um, people seem to be repeatedly hearing you basically saying to, to pay a pastor in any way is wrong. Um, do you want to comment on that? Right. No, I, and I think I've already said in this conversation that I think it's great if pastors are honored with even more than they <laughs> put into it. You know, sure. the Lord would richly reward them uh, through through congregations. Uh, no, pastors should be paid and they should be paid salaries. Um, and the word salary is kind of important, uh, not because I think it necessarily has to be a salary, but Many people who have been uh, who have studied the same texts I have in the past couple of centuries have come to that conclusion that it is okay to pay pastors as long as it's not a salary, as long as it's not regular, and that they would uh, live by faith and kind huh. of hang on from one week to the next, not knowing whether or not uh, they would have money. I, I don't think that's healthy, um, and I don't we'll, think that's we'll, what the we'll Bible is recommending. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep we'll keep them broke. You keep them uh, uh, you keep them humble. You know, yeah. We'll thing. keep yeah. them on their knees in prayer, hoping that next week they yeah. get a paycheck. <laughs> well, what does that look like in terms of? Maybe you can just um, clarify. Just the uh, I don't know if you've done it in the course of this uh, yet or not, uh, but clarify how how does that look? What does that mechanism look like, and uh, how does that not violate um, the principles you laid for it? I, I I understand how I'd answer it, but go ahead and just spell it out for us. What, what does that look like? In a way that Sorry. isn't uh, troubling. Salaries or or what are you referring to? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, do the math. You show the math. So uh, with the math, how would that look? Uh, how is that not a violation of reciprocity? Oh, I see. And, how is that and, co-labor? And, yeah, yeah. Just go ahead and just right. show show right. your work. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So right, if it's if it's valid, it has to be co-labor and it can't be reciprocity. So right, right. how is how is paying your pastor? Uh, co-labor because you know isn't he this guy that stands up there each week and then because of what he does for us we give back to him i don't think that's the right way of thinking about it you know we as a people gather each week in our uh, particular location you know i'm here in sunnyvale so we gather in this church here in sunnyvale and somebody has to uh somebody has to quit their job and do the do the work to dedicate themselves to the word of god and prayer as it says in acts 4 and so who should do that um, who's going to, you know, be impoverished <laughs> so that they won't be able to support their own family? But but instead, what we can do is we can all pitch in, right? Some of us by foregoing the fruit of our labor, and one of us by uh, dedicating himself to the work. At least one of us, if not multiple of us, at our at our church, it is multiple of us. Um, and so, uh, yes, that's what we're doing. We're co-laboring. And one one thing to consider there is what Paul says about his 
about his persecutions. When he lists, and on numerous occasions, when he lists all the hardships he had to endure in order to serve the Lord, in addition to being shipwrecked and beaten, he always lists that he worked with his hands. And so he considers having to have manually labored and then foregone, uh, not gotten to enjoy the fruit of his labor by spending it on himself, that that was one of the hardships that he endured. And so when others do the same thing, when they work with their hands and don't enjoy the fruit of their labor, they are working uh, alongside of Paul, you know, assuming that they're giving that money to Paul. So I see that as what the congr- what should be motivating the congregation each week as they pull their money together and s- support staff and um, fund ministry projects together. Sure, and yeah, I mean, and you know, go ahead, go ahead, you know, Arizona. one of one of the things that I thought was really convincing uh, uh, in the book that you had said is, you know, basically co labor is this idea that um, people uh, people basically they take their money and they give it to God as a form of worship essentially. And then God, uh, he gives at least some of that money to, uh, like a pastor, for example, uh, in order to support them to do exactly what you're saying to, so that they're able to study the Bible, um, in a, in a, in a deeper way that really no one can without quitting their, their, their typical nine to five type job. And one of the arguments that was, um, really pretty convincing for me as I was reading your book was I can't remember what chapter this was in. I, I think I wrote the page number down somewhere, but I don't have it in front of me right now. But basically, you know, you argued that if a pastor, for example, was simply uh, was not co-laboring, you know, with with the congregation, uh, if they didn't view it that way, then essentially what's happening is you have this pastor who you could um, essentially view as like a soldier who's meant to be working for the king, which is God. Um, but instead, he's taking money directly from the citizens. And uh, and when that's happening, he's no longer operating under the authority of the king anymore. He's operating under his own agency, uh, you know, taking money from whomever uh, he sees fit uh, like a mercenary. At a rate that he sees fit. Yeah. He basically becomes a mercenary now. Um, and, and that was, that was really a pretty interesting way of putting it because it, it immediately, it immediately made me think of all the, uh, a lot of mega churches I've seen where they, they kind of over time become slaves to pragmatism because they've been operating, uh, probably, um, in a similar way to the mercenary, you know, they're, uh, the congregation, I think, probably sees giving more as like a, I'm giving directly to the pastor instead of giving to God as a form of worship. And then God is giving to our pastor to support him and the work that he's doing. And because they view it in that, uh, in, in that type of way, um, eventually the pastor is kind of a slave to the, to the congregation in, an, in a very bad way where he's got a really play this game where he tries to be as biblical as possible, but then, you know, he can't, he can't rock the boat too hard or, you know, say hard things very often because if he does, then all the money's going to dry up essentially. Right. So I remember reading that and I remember underlining all that and, and writing it down because I just thought it was, I thought it was a pretty strong point you're making and one that you can kind of see out in the real world right now. Right. Yeah. Those are, uh, those implications that you're drawing out for the social pressures in a church, those were not things that I spelled out, but those are good observations. 
Um, you you mentioned the analogy of the the king, and I think it's in the soldier, right? And it's probably worth pointing out for listeners that uh, what I was referring to there is First Corinthians nine, because Paul uses a whole bunch of analogies in First Corinthians nine, and a lot of people just kind of glaze over them and they think, okay, well these are showing that uh, ministers should be paid. Well, yes, they are, but but stop and think about what the uh, what the payment dynamic looks like in each one of those analogies uh, with the priests. They weren't paid directly by the Levites. They're paid as the Levites bring things to God, and God gives to the Levites. Uh, what about the, the soldiers? The soldier, sure, he may collect taxes from people, but if he if he takes money directly from them and not as a representative of the king, that the king then pays him, uh, yeah, he's he's committing extortion. And each one of those analogies, Paul uses a whole bunch of them, each one the the source of money is not the employer in any of those circumstances. I was just going to comment on that and uh, uh, basically just say that uh, we I, I'm sure that we can all imagine plenty of scenarios where the old uh, you, you know like in the old country church or whatever where the uh, big donor comes up to the pastor and essentially says uh, you know I pay your salary uh, therefore do what I say kind of thing and that that's the kind of thing that happens when you when you mix up those. Um, uh, th- those kind of principles that you're talking about, for sure. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, Conley, and I, as I was I was uh, working through the book, I, I wasn't clear on this, but then I wanted to uh, I th- I may- maybe get you to clarify this, or uh, I-, I think what I was hearing you to be saying was that it, uh, and I think many people might might come to the conclusion, perhaps, as they read through the book, that it would be wrong to recoup any cost for books or CDs or conferences. But it seems like you're mitigating against that in the um, in your book in in a significant way. Essentially, saying, um, let, let me see if I can just give you an example. So, um, I remember uh, Grace Church used to um, they. they uh, I, I mean, I listened to all my. Um, all MacArthur sermons for free online at uh, Grace Church, uh, but then uh, you know at a certain part when CDs used to exist, uh, they would basically give you a digital copy for free. But if you wanted the CD, then they would say send us three bucks and we'll send one out and kind of thing. Uh, it does. It seems like you were. Um, in your book, commenting on that kind of situation or some sort of situation with conferences uh, in the church, where uh, essentially if you just recoup the yeah, you know the building rental cost, and you call it that. You didn't really have see a problem with that. Is that a fair summary? Is that so? I, um, as I was rounding out the book and finishing it up, uh, those were the last parts that I was working on, and I wasn't. I was kind of keeping it a little bit open, and I used phrases like, um, "The problem would mostly be resolved." By doing this, right, <laughs> and so I didn't quite say that it would be resolved. And as I've as I've thought about it more, my thoughts are that uh, if you're going to if you're going to charge for those kinds of things, if you're going to charge for food, etc., uh, you should be doing so, uh, or you should be outsourcing that to an entity that's free to do so without undermining their sincerity. Or, uh, yeah, you should be co-laboring so that those are uh, provided for. There's just all kinds of solutions that don't involve. Uh, the ministering entity um, charging for those. And I would say that for a number of reasons. One, Jesus in Matthew 10, 8, when he's telling the disciples to to heal the sick, et cetera, and then says, give without, uh, give without payment. If they were to charge for the miracles and then not the gospel, that wouldn't have been sufficient. And then similarly, Paul, 
uh, didn't charge for food and then say, you know, well, as long as you provide me room and board, I'll minister for you, right? He didn't charge for anything. So I think that it's better just to outsource those things. You know, if you're if you're running a conference and, you know, you want to say, well, there will be food trucks later, you know, and the food trucks um, are selling food, but you're not. I think that, that would be the safest way to do it because the, the problem is that you still potentially are undermining your sincerity by offering these things along with the gospel and then charging for them. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, yeah, this was the, you know, trying to put jumpy people at ease portion here. So, so I guess uh, that was a misunderstanding as, as far as that goes. Well, no, so, yeah, it, and it, it's fair because like I said, I was, uh, you know, those you were, were open things where I was, you, yeah. And you're I've open to of, the possibility, but you closed right. it now. Yeah. yeah and as, I, as I've talked to more people and I've, I've gotten more positive feedback and I'm not so, uh, on edge about, you know, saying too sure. much I, I feel more will you have a safe place can, to sleep <laughs> <laughs> i feel more comfortable that i can make harder lines yeah okay all right <laughs> um well conley um i don't i don't know if we've covered every quite everything that um maybe you've heard uh typically when it comes to pushback from other people so if the, what else is there that maybe we haven't asked you about yet when it comes to um mistaken conclusions that you've seen people jump to when they either read your book or they, they hear one of your interviews or in other words, uh, basically, uh, what are you not saying that people frequently hear you to be saying? Sure. So, uh, for people who are opposed, who, you know, don't, uh, don't like what I'm saying, what a lot of times some misunderstandings I get are that, um, I'm saying I've got this brand new thing that's never been heard before in the history of the church, which I don't believe I am. If you look at chapter 10, I try to uh, justify some precursors in history. And then uh, and then on top of that, that I'm saying that we are in no way obligated to our pastors, which I'm saying we are. It's just a mediated obligation where uh, it is directly an obligation to God and then indirectly an obligation to ministers. And then, of course, the idea that we shouldn't pay pastors, which I'm in no way saying we should absolutely pay pastors. Uh, then on the on the other end of that, those who are in uh, favor of what I'm saying but but misunderstand me, there is a tendency for people who already have some issue with the way church does the churches, um, well, excuse me, church entities or parachurch entities do things, and they they bring all those to the table and they see me as saying those things, which. I mean, you could just name any kind of thing that people get upset about and uh, and put that in there. A lot of people hear me saying these things when I'm not. Um, so, you know, maybe uh, maybe it has something to do with uh, the opulence of what they spend their money on afterward, uh, what pastors spend their money on. Uh, I, I address nothing about that. I think once someone's been given money, it, they, should they should certainly avoid the appearance of sin, but uh, they're free to spend their money how they would like. Uh, that would just be one example. Do you, you have any other quick ones you you could? Uh... Yeah, sure. Well, we were talking about profit earlier. You know that it's okay to take money as long as it's not for profit. That's a that's a common one that people think that I'm saying. Uh, and then, um, uh, yeah, that people are uh, paid too much, right? And I never I never address amounts. Um, it's really not about amounts. It's about uh, even though the amounts can sometimes expose sin issues. Uh, more severely, uh, it's really just about whether or not it's co-labor or reciprocity. It's really just about those two categories. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think one of the things that was helpful about the book is that you also kind of push back against the notion that the motive matters and 
uh, meaning like it's about the source of uh, the funds. Essentially, it's not so much about uh, a person's motivation in taking the money or something like that. Um, right. And, and you had a lot of other qualifications along those lines. I, I almost want you to you know spell them all out, but this would go on <laughs> <Sure>. forever. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the well, qu- motive motive is important, but I, I try to I try to frame that in a very uh, not a perfectly, but a very more objective way because. A lot of people would say, oh, well, I can charge for my ministry as long as I'm not doing it in a greedy way. And I'm saying definitionally, if you are if you are engaging in reciprocity, where you're exchanging ministry for money um, uh, in, a, in a way that's not co-labor, where, you know, we're all working together and negotiating who's going to provide what resources to make this ministry happen. Um, if you're if you're engaged in reciprocity, I'm saying that is definitionally greedy, according right, to what right. scripture says. Right. Right. And I thought that was I thought that was a very helpful distinction. Uh, One of the questions I had related to that was just um, part of how I try to approach moral problems in general is I I try to group, um, you know, uh, group group, um, whatever the moral problem is under a couple of headings. And so I try to think through, well, in this you know scenario, what what are the sin issues here? Uh, you know what is the black and white? What are the what are the things that um, essentially the Bible is uh, clear on? And um, uh, I'm not trying to say that the Bible is unclear in any way. I'm just trying to say what are what are the things the Bible clearly teach that uh, that applies to this scenario, and what are the things that are you know gray areas or wisdom issues as far as that goes? And so, um, what what's the difference between the two? So um, often you know just in terms of marriage, in terms of counseling, in terms of you know, any kind of scenario I'm in, I, I try to, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a moral problem. I list the commands, the principles that relate to it. And then I try to say, well, these are the black and white. And then, you know, what's the gray? What's, um, you know, so example would be, you know, the Bible tells us to read the Bible, for instance, right? <laughs> so that would be black and white. We need to read the scriptures, but then it might be a little bit gray on how many hours a day you read it, if that makes sense, Right. right? Right. So I I don't want to be the guy legislating how many hours a day people read the Bible. I would say, you know, how much time do you have? And that may be, um, you know, related to a lot of factors as far as that goes. But then I, I want to be the guy who's saying, well, obviously we need to be reading it, right? We need to be reading it on a regular basis. And, you know, if you if you uh, don't have a taste for it, then, you know, I, I that's a problem. And uh, so I, I don't know that I'm going to, you know, be... The guy spelling out how frequent, but you know, I can tell you what I think is reasonable uh, as far as that goes. But then you might you know, hold that a little bit, a little more loosely than the command itself. And so, in this kind of discussion, what would you see as the, you know, the black and white, and what what would you see as the gray, if that makes sense, or the wisdom kind of things, uh, if if that's something you thought about? Sure. Well, there's several difficulties, right? One is establishing whether something is co-labor or it's reciprocity, and so there are. Uh, fuzzier areas in this where sure. something has the shape of reciprocity, but someone is claiming that they're doing it out of a desire to co-labor. And uh, <laughs> I think that, I think that well, we should be concerned about what it looks like externally. You know, Paul didn't say when the Corinthians uh, came to him with money that, Oh, okay, well, you know, if we just call this co-labor, I'll, I'll take it. You know, he said, you'd never take their money, <laughs> but uh, you, mean another, you can play a game. Basically you can play a word right. game to where you're, um, you know, you call it something, but then functionally, everyone knows that something else is happening. Essentially, right? Yeah, and that might be that might get fuzzier around the edges. But another question, not just identifying something as co-labor or reciprocity, but identifying something as ministry or not ministry. You know, if I 
if I uh, give you a paper Bible, a paperback Bible, um, that's typically ministry, right? I'm trying to give you the word of God. Now, if I give you a, a leather, really fancy, you know, gold edged, um, you know, embossed, et cetera, uh, Bible. Now, at what point did that switch from being ministry to, you know, me providing a, a luxury good? Because uh, so I don't, I don't think that the Dorian principle needs to regulate, um, that it needs to regulate uh, luxury Bibles or uh, T-shirts with uh, Bible verses on them. But at what point, at what point uh, does that happen? Because, for example, I think it should regulate worship music, uh, music designed to be. Uh, sung in God's church, but then if you have a band that's entertaining people with uh, music with Christian themes, well, you know how many, um, <laughs> uh, you know how many Christian words do you have to have before this becomes a worship song? And now you're <laughs> now you're charging people for your services to you know come worship with them, etc. Uh, it's yeah, I can't I can't ferret all these things out for everyone. I'm just trying to establish the principle. And one one analogy that I've been using more lately as I've thought about it is the analogy to the regulative principle of worship. Uh, your audience might be familiar with that principle. Uh, it distinguishes between forms and elements, and the elements are things that cannot be changed in the worship of God. You always want prayer, singing, reading of the word. Uh, but the forms, you know, how many songs, whether you stand or sit, those things are allowed to change. And so uh, people debate about what's a form and what's an element, whether or not something is a form or an element. But uh, by and large, Reformed believers agree on the regulative principle itself. So, uh, you know, we may differ, and I imagine that people will possibly forever differ on, you know, what constitutes co-labor, what constitutes reciprocity, uh, what constitutes ministry, what doesn't constitute ministry. But but I'm hoping that people can begin agreeing just on this principle. Yeah, well, I, I I think the principle is obvious. I think the principle is there. I think it's, um, uh, you know, however you word it, I don't, you know, maybe there's a better way to word it. I don't know. I, I, uh, I it, it may not be the final word on, you know, the best distinction between the two things, but I think it's a useful, useful way to word it. And I, I, I think it's right. And I did have a, a line of questions along those lines trying to, you know, just get a feel for how you're, uh, you know, where you draw the line in terms of application and uh, we'll get, sure. uh, why don't we get there in just a second? And I want to ask you um, before we get there, I'd like to ask you just some pragmatic kind of uh, uh, concerns. And, and uh, you know, I, as I've said uh, to you, I, when I, when I spoke to you on the phone, I, I'm not the kind of guy who likes to, um, this frequently happens to me where I'm, I'm trying to advocate for a principle that I see, see as black and white. Here's a principle here. It's black and white. I can't do anything about it. It is what it is. We need to obey it. And inevitably, I mean, I would say the standard mode of affairs, uh, particularly if it's unpopular or disputed <laughs> in a certain way, is is to always try to, you know, basically argue from the bad case to uh, no application, essentially, right? So tough cases don't make for good laws. You, 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 um, you make your laws on the basis of, of normal kind of things. And, uh, you know, the, I have a couple like pragmatic kind of things that I want to throw your way. But then I and I have responses in myself. I just kind of like to hear what you're saying. In there, and I'm not throwing them out there essentially just to try to undermine the whole project. I just I just want to hear, um, you know, a good. I, I just want to see how you're processing through some real pragmatic kind of things to think about. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yes. All right. So uh, one of the things that. Uh, 
has been very obvious to me as a person who's gone into counseling and, and been unwilling to charge for it, okay, is that there is a lot of opportunities that I've forfeited uh, by not charging for counseling. And I would say that I've had like many, many, you know, godly people coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, like, uh, you might want to consider doing this. And I just, I, I just can't bring myself to charge for counseling. It seems just obscene. Okay. Uh, but then, um, it, it just seems, it, I don't know a better way to describe peddling the word of God, because I mean, I, I'm the kind of guy when I do counseling who I'm going to tell them the gospel. I'm going to tell them to repent. I mean, Harrison sat in a counseling room with me as we counsel people and, you know, I, I go there. You know? So I go there probably. He quick. does go there. <laughs> yeah, I go there quick, quicker than most people. Right. I, I don't even, Conley, I don't even earn the right to be heard. You know, like I could just go there, <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, um, the thing is, like, it just seems wrong to charge for it. But then, um, but the thing is, like, uh, the pushback is always, well, you know, if you don't, ca- if you, if you don't charge for it, you're going to have to spend your time. You only have so many hours a day doing, uh, you know, all these temp making stuff, and uh, you're going to miss out on opportunities. And there's a type of person who would want to go to counseling, and who's going to distrust free counseling. They're not going to want it. They're going to think that they're going to get higher quality counsel if it's paid for, and they're going to you know, turn your nose at you and you're missing out on opportunities. So, so if you don't, and, and I would say that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe God's sovereign and I'm, you know, uh, I believe in all the five points of Calvinism and probably, you know, add a few more, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but then the reality is like, yes, I, I, I would say that, um, there would be opportunities available to me if I would charge for it. So w- w- how would you, how would you respond to that sort of thing? So the first part of that was about being sufficiently supported that you would you would have more time for counseling if you did not have to labor in other ways to to support your family. And so uh, with that, I think it would be good if churches started doing more uh, recognizing these different kinds of ministries and helping people financially the, with them and funding them. So at our own church, uh, we have several counselors, and uh, one of them is uh a full-time pastor, and we understand this to be part of his ministry. And so part of what he's being paid for is to do this this counseling work. And then uh, we have some other uh, people who counsel, uh, two women, although one of them recently moved to another area, so I guess only one. Um, and uh, we have supported them financially as they've pursued certification, and, and uh, we'd be willing to also um, provide some kind of reimbursement, maybe not to the level that's uh, deserved, uh, but uh, this is something that we're working toward is is uh, supporting people in these kinds of ministries. So, uh, yeah, I think I think churches should be working together. So the fact that you have to reject reciprocity does not mean you have to reject support, right? Because there's always co-labor. The, the question is, you know, can the church adapt and come up with these co-labor models once it recognizes that reciprocity is not the way to go? Now, well, uh, you, you, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, continue. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, the, so the second part of your question, though, was about uh, if people will perceive the value if you don't charge for it. And uh, kind of funny story, I sent a a friend of mine was working in a church library or a church bookstore um, in Southern California. Uh I won't mention the name of the church, but let the let the hearer understand. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I sent them I sent them a box of these books, and they were they were going to distribute them in the bookstore, but they didn't want people to think that they were of no value, so they they slapped uh, uh, price tags on them. <laughs> oh, funny! <laughs> even funny. though <laughs> even though I'm offering the book for free, 
So yeah, that is, that is a mindset a lot of people have, but consider that this is the exact same mindset that Paul was dealing with in first, uh, second Corinthians 11, right? The super apostles look great and they're charging for their money or excuse me, they're charging money for their, for their service, for their gospel. And it seems like, oh, they've got the, they've got the real deal. They've, they're more valuable. Paul's sure he's got the gospel, but it's kind of, you know, piddly and weak. And Paul says that he will never take their money so that, he, or excuse, so that, uh, he would distinguish himself from those false apostles. So, yeah, as far as the value goes, um, yeah, there's no way to avoid it sometimes. Paul even dealt with it. But in the end, if the church can move forward and really reforming on this issue, then maybe even the opposite can happen, where we start to distinguish ourselves from those who are charging for these services. You know, and I, I really appreciated that in the book. I think there is a chapter on... I think the chapter was mainly focusing on um, parachurch organizations, but then I think the the principle that you um, that you set in that chapter was really interesting. Basically, uh, uh, what you said was what you're saying now. You know, if if churches could really get to a point where they uh, they prioritize supporting these types of people like biblical counselor counselors for example or um an, i think another one you brought up was um you know authors people who want to sit down and, and write down the knowledge that they have in their heads they want to put it on paper and then get it out to as many people as possible one of the things you said i think you said in in the book was essentially hey churches should be uh at least the churches that can bear these types of burdens, they should be trying to get these guys um, uh, supported through the through the church itself. So that's basically a ministry that frees up the authors to be able to invest the time necessary uh, to write the book, get all the gather all the materials to publish it and get it out into people's hands, and then still not have to actually charge for the books themselves. And I, I thought that was a really, uh, I really appreciated uh, that idea. And after reading it, I was, I was kind of wondering to myself, man, why, why don't more churches operate this way overall? Right. I think part of it is just the expectation where you do have these really excelling counselors or really excelling authors. They're supporting themselves by reciprocity. And so the expectation is, well, that's generally how it works. Um, but I think once people start treating that as less of an option, uh, these other options will become uh, not only more obvious, but more normalized. And that may be kind of the answer to the follow-up question I was going to have, because I, I've obviously not found those kind of... Um, uh, argue, I mean, I, I haven't found the pragmatic argument persuasive. I mean, if you don't charge, you forfeit opportunities. It's like, well, yeah, I'm sure I, I have, but then... <laughs> There's a principle there that you can't move, right? You can't can't do anything with it. So right, it just, you can justify it, all kinds of seeker sensitive yeah, nonsense. Sure, you know, sure. with that line of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Now, I I would say though, like um, you know, and maybe this is kind of what you're responding to as well. I've been a part of different counseling organizations that have done fundraising and you know, um, larger scale biblical counseling organizations, and and I mean, I think the reality is that churches uh, they don't want to pay for it. They don't, you know, they're happy for you to come along and, um, now I'm, I'm obviously speaking in generalities in terms of my own experience, but you know, in my own experience, my own personal experience, um, it's, it, it's a, it, it's like a nice idea to co-labor 
for something like biblical counseling, but then on the ground, it's like it, it doesn't seem like the church really is all that ready for it as far as that goes. And so with, with the organization, I, I was, um, um, what I'm thinking of, you know, you basically have an organization with uh, one person who's getting financially supported on that. And then, you know, a bunch of people who are in, you know, hoping one day that they can, you know, be supported in that sort of way. But, uh, you know, after, you know, church, after church, after church, after church, no one wants to pay for it. And, you know, the churches, the church with money are just more than happy to say, hey, counsel our people for us. But then, you know, free of charge, essentially. But <laughs> uh, but then basically all, that all points to just um, just uh, kind of another pragmatic kind of reality that the, the church and I mean, acquiring fellow co-laborers is pretty hard. You know, what, uh, would you acknowledge that? Oh, yeah, definitely. And yeah, what you're describing, it sounds like there's several unhealthy things going on there because, uh, you know, if you've got these counselors operating outside of the church or I'm not, I'm not sure what, but why, you know, why can't the church, each church support their own counselors? Um, oh, they just don't prioritize it. I mean, they don't, I right, mean, I, right. I don't, I don't know any church. I mean, I don't, I know very few churches out there that want to I mean, you have the bigger churches with the money and, you know, they have all the stuff that they're doing and, you know, they're focused on all the programs and all their events and everything else and all their salaries. And, you know, and they don't see counseling as if it's a real like just give it to the psychologist, man. Like we're not even qualified (laughs) to do it anyways. And so we're just trying to, you know, like essentially it's just like, oh, that's a nice idea, you know. Uh, but they don't even prioritize shepherding. For the vast majority of huge churches, they don't don't even (laughs) – they're not shepherding, you know. So, right. and I think uh, I think that's part of the problem, you know, is that uh, the the values aren't necessarily where they should be. Now, there, your question about it's hard to find co laborers it's hard to get churches to band together and work towards a single project. That's true too, but I think in this particular case of counseling, that uh, there's even more um, issues involved because uh, priorities are just not where they should be. Sure. Yeah, and, and maybe that's uh, part part of the deal. So yeah, that, I think um, I think um, <sighs> yeah. When when you think about how comprehensive of uh, a critique the book is making across the board, it does seem like in order to rectify things, you really do need like some sort of comprehensive level of commitment. Because right now, everyone, you know, it does seem like most people are more than happy to pay for their services approach to ministry in the way that you describe. But then, um, like that kind of takes all their money <laughs> so, right. or a lot of it. And so then the idea of, I, I mean, if everyone were just to stop right now and take the co-labor point, it'd be like, how many Patreon people can I support at once? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, uh, but th- those are just, um, I just wanted to hear your, I-, I wanted to hear your thought process on those kind of uh, objections that I've never found satisfactory myself in, in terms of my own situation. Sure. Uh, but then, well, yeah, if, if more of it happened within the church, uh, that would be great. And things that need to be across multiple churches, ideally there'd be associations and you'd have these things promoted in associations in such a way that you could, you could band together and work towards them. You know, some larger, uh, maybe a software project that multiple churches want to get together and do or, or put together a seminary. Uh, but things where we're talking about individual ministries like counseling, there's no reason that that can't be, uh, funded just within a single church. It seems like, um, you know, if um, 
Like if we're just to speak in terms of denominations that are out there, it seems like a lot of the money that's going, you know, from the pew to, you know, your standard uh, denomination um, is going to fund, you know, bureaucracy and conferences and all these kind of things. Whereas it seems like, it, and then the standard church, you know, pew sitter feels like, okay, yeah, we're doing something because our church has given 10% to missions by giving to these organizations, but it seems like that's being handled in a pretty inefficient way. And if we, um, if churches would just, um, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, directly fund uh, particular individuals or uh, ministry opportunities that they were aware of, it may be that you cut out a lot of that and there's more opportunities available and you're not just out of sight, out of mind, hope it's all going to the best kind of thing. But do uh, you have any thoughts related to that? Uh, yeah, our church uh, directly supports uh, several missionaries and that does seem to be the best way of doing it. I suppose there's some value to these larger uh, missions boards that uh, – Function across churches, but I'm I'm not sure. I think that each church should have its own uh, mission, you know, and its own agenda for missions and work together with other churches for a particular or with a particular missionary in mind, as opposed to uh, something larger than that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's pretty good. All right, well, um, all right. So I think you know, as I'm. As I'm reading the book, I agree with the large principle. I'm I'm there with you. I, you know, I've made decisions like that in my life that have you know affected how my life actually looks in a, in, in very uh, practical ways. I'm I'm there. Uh, I, I I think as I was reading it, um, there was a sense in which I I don't know that I. Um, would draw the lines exactly where you draw it at various points. But then, you know, I'm not the kind of person who just um, thinks to himself, like, if someone is more conservative than me, then they must be a kook, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that kind of person. I I mean, I'm I'm the kind of person who I want to hear the argument and one of the, and and I want to, I want to, I want to push on it a little bit and I want to see, uh, I want to test it a little bit and see what, see what, uh, uh, you know, how it stands up and see what's being communicated. And, and part of that is just because I I, um, I I can see so many areas in the church right now where there's just massive blind spots across the board. And they've been that way for years. I mean, I just see so many areas like that. And I've seen them over the years, uh, you know, in particular. I mean, I, I, I saw like CRT through the church, you know, 15 years ago, yeah, 20 years ago, and no one was talking about it. And I'm just sitting there wondering, why is no one talking about this, right? No, why does no one see this? Why am I the only one who's seen it, you know, as far as that goes? And uh, when the, you know, the, the same-sex attraction, celibate gay Christian movement stuff came along, I'm sitting there wondering, who's, who's going to see this, you know? And I don't have a platform. I'm nobody. I'm just a, you know, guy out in the middle of nowhere. But, like, there's been plenty of moments like that where I'm just, I've, you know, I'm reading the Bible and I'm seeing things that no one else is seeing. Uh, and I'm just wondering when is everyone going to comment on this kind of thing that, uh, and and your book has a way of, um, talking about money in a way that I thought was pretty, um, helpful. Like in terms of just, I've looked around at the celebrity culture in the church and frankly, I found it just gross and offensive. I mean, we, we were at the G3 conference this time and, um, Justin Peters is walking off the stage, and some uh, as he's walking off the stage, trying. Uh, I <laughs> you, you 
Yeah, all right. Well, you ignore my uh, uh, figure of speech there. Uh, as, but, he, <laughs> as he exits the stage. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Okay. All right. It, <laughs> it dawned on me what I was saying in the middle of that one. Uh, but as he's, you know, uh, leaving the stage, um, there's a, a kid that walked up to him and, you know, does a selfie, you know, with. <laughs> Uh, as he's leaving the stage and and so like this celebrity culture kind of thing I, I think i've chalked a lot of what i'm seeing up to the celebrity culture and like um and and quite questionable like uh things that are happening with money i mean they you know we sold beth moore in the you know Lifeway for years, and I mean, even a bookstore like Southern Baptist Theological Seminary's bookstore, the most careful theological bookstore in the world uh, that you can imagine. You know, there's heresy in that. You know, when I'm going there, and so like we have money problems, like money. You know, money. I know we have money problems, and so I'm looking at a book like this, and I'm just thinking, man, like we maybe we have more money problems than we realize, <laughs> as far as that goes. And so that's been my kind of reaction to the book. But then I, I think there's kind of a questions I'm working through with myself as it relates to the application, if that makes sense. Right. And so some, so, so some things that I, I don't, I just want to hear what you have to say about it. Maybe you can resolve some um, difficulties in my mind and, you know, maybe, maybe they're significant, maybe they're not, I don't know, but I just uh, like, I, I, there's part of me that's just like, I totally agree with the principle, but then, I wonder uh, how does it relate to certain other areas? Okay, sure. So, well, just one, just one comment on uh, celebrity culture quickly. I, I do think there's, and I, I don't think you would uh, reject this that there's some value with um, uh, recognizing certain ministers as especially gifted, and uh, uh, even even of old, you know, there's something where when you, uh, you know, when you grab a John Owen book, you know, you're about to get into something good. Um, so there's there's some value in that, but I think and what would the Dorian principle do? It wouldn't it wouldn't strip money away from everyone who was otherwise funded. I, I would hate for people to think that that would be what would happen. But I think what would happen is as these people would be supported um, not by sales but by willing co labors, you'd find uh, the the meteor stuff supported more. Hopefully, you would find uh, those things which are really taking a stand that people would um, really want to make a sacrifice for, as opposed to, um, I, I think a lot of the hirelings would disappear. So I, I do think it would redirect the funds in a better way if this were if this were based on um, people getting excited about a ministry rather than just uh, wanting to pay for something that they need at this moment. It, it would, it would, um, it would force people to look at what they're giving their money to and make decisions based on what they value and not just uh, based on uh, what the uh, who the powers that be tell you essentially are the right investments, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, there's definitely more accountability involved. And, you know, when I purchase yeah. uh, books, the last thing on my mind is, oh, I should stop and pray for this author. <laughs> you know, but if, if people were uh, giving, donating to these to these authors to co-labor with them. You know, if I donate to Vody Balkum or whoever, and I'm like, you know, I, I really like his ministry. I'm, I would want to support him. Yeah, I'm going to hold him accountable. I'm going to care a little more about what he's doing with his life. I'm going to pray for him. You know, there's just a lot of things that are going to happen that wouldn't be happening when I'm just purchasing his books. Um, and that's just to pick a random name, but but pick anybody, and it's the same thing. Uh, there's there's a lot more that's going on. In addition to one more thing is just the joy involved with with investing in something 
of eternal value. And people are kind of robbed of that when they are uh, paying off a bill so that they can learn and uh, they're not able to invest in and enjoy uh, the Lord working through them as they would be with co-labor. Sure. All right. Well, uh, I think uh, you already mentioned this as far as um, I asked you the difference between the black and white and the gray and part of the black and white you said was the principle itself and then. Uh, part one of the gray areas might be how one uh, defines gospel ministry in particular, if that's correct. Uh, is that a fair right. summary? Yes. Okay. All right. So, and, and that's where uh, I think uh, if, when uh, there's a definition you gave in your book, you said, for our purposes, gospel ministry is any activity that proclaims the gospel or directly attends to its proclamation, uh, though not immediately obvious, this includes all religious instruction. So you gave that kind of uh, definition of gospel ministry. And I th- I think um, that uh, I wanted to kind of get, get a feel for where you're applying, um, how you're making certain uh, applications as it relates to just a spectrum. So I think the vast majority of people, um, you see a pagan, right? <laughs> uh, and the pagan comes up to you and say, hey, what, what must I do to be saved? And you, you, you say, well, I will tell you if you, you know. Uh, give me these three easy payments of nineteen ninety nine or or whatever else. Everyone, everyone has been offended by that. Um, you know, uh, except for maybe uh, uh, the the crass prosperity guys, right? right you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, pr- pretty much everyone is has always kind of, uh, except for the prosperity folks, are, are basically uh, in that kind of scenario, saying, "All right, that's weird," right? Um, now, uh, pastor charged for sermons. I I would say, oh man, that's really strange, right? Uh, that was enough for me to, and a lot of people I think uh, who who be your audience for the book really have a problem with that as well. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would. But and then and it's funny because the same people wouldn't have a problem with uh, uh, that same pastor putting that those sermons into writing in the form of a book and then selling the book. Um, and I don't know why uh, they would see a difference between the two, but. <laughs> well, I, I, I do have a question along those lines and, and um, l- l- I'll get to that in one second. I, I have a question sure. along those lines and I can kind of spell out, for some reason it feels a little bit different to me, but it doesn't, um, well, well, why don't we just go there, right? So um, one of the things that, as I as I'm thinking about that, that very thing there is uh, the, the idea of luxury that you already mentioned that seems to be somewhat relevant to the book idea in my mind. And so maybe I can give you a, an example and then just kind of spell out um, a, a concern and then just see see what you think about it. Maybe you could resolve it for me. But um, essentially, yeah, I mean, my brother, you know, was a videographer and, you know, he basically used to make income on wedding videos. He spent I, in order to make a wedding video, be a, a good videographer, you, you have to spend, you know, 30 hours a week and 20, 20, 30 hours, 20, or 20 to 30 hours, sometimes 40 hours doing a wedding video with everything that entails. And that's just a significant undertaking. And then many, many people would look at him and just, you know, like your Christian friends or your brother, or your church family. And it's just like, you know, how dare you, sir, you know, charge for a wedding video or something like that. And it's like, well, this is my business, right? I mean, this is what I do for a living. This is how I put food on the table. And there's like, there's, this is not just some simple thing. And it's like, well, yeah, if you, the, the response, the pushback to that is always kind of like, uh, well, you know, um, if you needed anything, I give you a shirt off my back, your car breaks down, I'll fix your car. 
and everything else, you know, is this is really strange that you're my friend and you're my church member and you're going to charge me for a wedding video or something like that. And, and inevitably, um, like the, the, the difference though, is that you're dealing with a luxury over and against a necessity. Uh, so I don't, I don't think you'd have any problem with a videographer charging, would you? Oh no, absolutely not. Yeah. yeah I not, mean, so, not in the context of a wedding or something now. And you would, you would con- consider a wedding video to be a luxury and not a necessity, right? Uh, yes, but I, I wouldn't consider it to be gospel ministry either. So it's no, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just, uh, I I just, uh, that's just an example of like a luxury, uh, how a luxury and a necessity kind of thing works. Now, when, when you gave me, when you gave me your book, um, Conley, I, I took the PDF and I listened to it on robotic text to speech multiple times at two times speed. And there's been scenarios in my life where people walk in on me, you know, listening to some book or some sermon on two or three times speed or whatever it is. And they look at me as if I'm like some Frankenstein kind of monster, like what in the world are you doing? This is, (laughs) I don't know how to even process what's going on here kind of thing. But then, um, like for me, I'm, I'm someone who's just like, just give me the information. I just want the information. I don't care about the presentation i don't care about the packaging <laughs> i don't care about any of that right uh like i just give me the information so just give me the give me the truth i just want the truth that's all i want right and it can come in a robotic text-to-speech voice and that's fine for me it doesn't matter at all it doesn't i'm not even looking for an experience i'm not looking for anything like that right but then my wife sure. on the other hand well, for the for the benefit of your <laughs> listeners uh, there is an audiobook you don't have to listen <laughs> okay. to it as a, like a robot you told me about that, but it didn't even matter, Conley. It didn't even matter to me. <laughs> just, I was, I was fine with my my uh, robotic uh, voice. I've grown accustomed to her, you know. Um, but um, it's fine. But uh, no, but my wife, you know, she's she's the kind of person who just likes the feel of a book and the smell of a book, and you know, the sensation of turning pages, and you know, likes to sit down. She likes the decoration of a book. She likes uh, pretty artwork. She likes all that kind of stuff. And to me, it's just like, I, I need the content, you know, I just need the content. And so, you know, like a scenario that would come to my mind as it relates to this sort of thing is like, like, um, you, you remember the reader Bible that came out recently? Oh, yes. Uh, there've been a lot of them. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's been, um, so, like, one of the things that they were pointing out is that there's so much more to a book than just, like, like um, that you might not even realize. And so your standard Bible was presented in kind of a reference format kind of thing, right? But then most people don't think to read the Bible because it's not packaged as a book kind of thing. And so all the typesetting and, and so you think about all the typesetting, the cover art, the, you know, the the neat spacing of the words, all that kind of stuff, uh, plus the feel of it, texture of the paper, all that. Is there... Like, you know, if if a person were to come along and just say, hey, you can have my raggedy ma- manuscripts for free. Uh, now, I don't even know if that would be allowed with current uh, copyright law and everything else, but you can have my raggedy manuscripts for free. <laughs> but if you want the work of art, then like, uh, like, would it, uh, w- would you think that that would be a problem that you, like, w- w- would there be any category of luxury that would apply to that kind of scenario in your mind to say that, all those things I described are kind of luxuries over and against just the, you know, the brute content as far as that goes. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, it does. It does. And this was, and this was something that I wrestled with a lot when I was, when I was wrapping up the book, but 
in the end, um, so when it comes to just the, you know, and this goes back to what you were talking about with uh, Grace to You and the CDs, uh, when it comes to distributing this format in kind of a, a minimalistic way, even if it's material, I don't think that the ministering entity should uh, should charge for anything. And I really think uh, if you're going to sell some kind of luxury item that's for uh, you know people who want a, a richer experience or something like that, I I think that it should be done by another entity so that you're not you're not undermining the sincerity of ministry. Now that going back to your question about wisdom issues. I think this is more of a, a wisdom issue thing, but I think that uh, there should be a nice, clear line so that you aren't, uh, so that you aren't, um, yeah, selling something that it, that attends to the gospel. It's very clear that it's somebody else uh, doing this in a very secular capacity. You know, they're making these Puritan reprints, or they're making you know whatever uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, these these leather bound uh, or cloth bound Bibles and works. And that way, they like the pagan could profit on it essentially, but then not the. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't think it'd be. I think it'd be fine for a, uh, you know, and part of this is because we have all these. Uh, I don't want to say commercial entities, but uh, it's easy to put labels on things. So it could be the same person behind each one, but it would be very clearly, you know, not the ministry that's trying to charge you, because you would want to. You would want to know that this ministry is. Uh, they have no. Um, they have no ulterior motive in trying to provide you with this thing. They're not trying to upsell you this other product, right? Like that's the, so, so, that would be the concern that I'd have. So like like a pastor, um, like you know, the pastor just says, okay, you know, like all our sermons, you know, online for free, all our audio online for free. You want the decorative artwork version, like you know, Crossway does it. We get a royalty off of that. Would you be saying that would be inherently compromising a, a wisdom issue? You know, ha, I'm just trying to understand the position itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, sorry, I didn't understand the scenario you just described. Okay, so like, uh, like you have a scenario where, um, all right, you know, talk about something like um, Grace Church or something like that, where you know they um, they put all their um, uh, just any church, any church, they they, they you know all the um, all the sermons, you know, online for free, you can have it. You know, all the book manuscripts online for free, you can have it. And then, so that's all for free. You can have the content, no problem. Any of the content we ever produce, it's yours. You can have it free. Uh, but then there is, um, you know, there are organizations, Crossway, whatever, who sells books. And so they want to put some of these things in a book and give us some royalties off of it. Would that be compromising, you think, if that same material is available for free in a, you know, cruder format kind of thing that's kind of the right. question i'm getting well at. if you're if you're getting royalties off of it yes i don't think the church should be in the business of commerce at all um even if it would be acceptable for someone else because you're once again undermining the sincerity of ministry and this is and yeah these are some of the rough edges that i'm trying to work out but uh yeah you don't want to yeah you don't want to undermine the sincerity of ministry which is what this all is all, what this is all about no, that's fair. I that's I just kind of I, I was trying to see what you would think about that. Um, now uh, another funny pushback, and and is this is um, <laughs> friendly pushback, but but um, you, you know you have a lot of uh, the um, the the Kyperian movement that's happened essentially, right? And so uh, you know a lot of a lot of your organizations like uh, the Gospel Coalition. Um, 
together for the gospel, all that. Um, they're you know they're pushing all the uh, the Kuiperian stuff, every square inch kind of stuff, and uh, trying to influence culture uh, as far as that goes. Now I think you have like some organizations out there, and you, you know I'll just tell you my my. Uh, my per- my perspective of what's happening without you having to endorse my interpretation at all, but uh, uh, my my perspective of what's happening with the the Kyperian stuff is that a lot of it feels like it's just uh, you know packaging worldliness essentially, and so let's uh, be like the world in order to win the world. And you know I think a lot of your uh, uh, a, a lot of your uh, Kyperian you know people out there are essentially. It seems like to me, like in love with the world and the things of the world and, you know, basically uh, trying to do movie reviews about the Christ-centered themes and Fifty Shades of Grey or something horrendous like that. Uh, that's hyperbole, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, the kind of uh, movie reviews and stuff out there, it just feels like strange, like it's just a kind of push towards worldliness. But then you have other organizations, I would say, that are like just encouraging people uh, in the main to, you know, uh, create Christian businesses. So like something like Gab is trying to encourage people to create Christian businesses. Uh, the cross politic guys, uh, you know, apologia, they're, they're all out there trying to encourage people to fight secularism. Like secularism is a bad thing, right? So let's fight secularism. Let's create Christian businesses. Let's do this. Now, it, like if you have like a real strict, uh, if you have a really loose definition of ministry to where a lot of things can come under it, does it encourage um, uh, secularism is kind of the thought process in my mind. Uh, so like it just some scenarios, like if you, you a Christian writes a Christian book on marriage, then that would be a violation, right? Right. Yes. Um, yeah. If, if yeah. you're talking about a Christian view of marriage, yes. Yeah, Christian view. Right. So Christian writes a Christian fantasy book, right? So like uh, Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, we, are we in fuzzy territory or are we still there? No, I think that's no, I think that, that's perfectly fine to entertain um, with Christian themes, sure. Oh, and, so, and, and to charge for it, yeah. Because, all right, so what, what would be the distinction you make there? Right, well, the essence of the thing is entertainment as opposed to the essence being to uh, communicate the gospel and religious instruction. Right. It's is what is what is the essence of what's being provided? Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So so the uh the essence would be um if basically any any reasonable person who is looking at this, if they were to ask themselves what is the intention behind it, is it to teach um gospel themes or uh, word it the way you're wording it. So yeah, if the if the essence is to um, I think one way of thinking about it too is when someone gives uh, biblical instruction, they are, uh, in a sense, you know, imparting the Holy Spirit in greater measure. That might be an odd way of saying it, but you know, they want to they want this person to have a more spirit filled life, and that is what uh, Simony was. You know, when Simon wanted to pay for wanted to pay to have the Holy Spirit. That's that's why I phrase it that way. So when you, yeah, when you have. Uh, you know, a, a good value or a good theme or anything good in the world, because there's a lot, you know, God created this world and it has goodness anywhere in it. Um, just the fact that you include those things doesn't make it uh, something that now has to be regulated by the Dorian principle, because you're not trying to uh, impart that kind of special revelation that uh, that uh, transforms the soul. Um, well, isn't yeah, that what not- C.S. Lewis was trying to do in Narnia and 
I, I'm just, I'm just, I mean, isn't that what, it, I mean, like over and against like just, um, you know, a secular yeah, book, well, like, I mean, isn't he trying to form your worldview, teach you how to think, uh, teach sure. you about Aslan, who's God, who's, you know, but, yeah, but then you would say. That's a good say, question. That's a good question. I, I, I guess it could get fuzzier because, you know, you could always remove some of his words that were narrative and fill them in with words that are just direct biblical teaching and then you remove some more and then you add some more and you remove some more and you add some more. And at what point does this suddenly become, um, you know, just directly teaching? Well, yeah. I mean, if I wrote a book, I mean, I, I, I mean, I want, I've, I've wanted to write many books and I have all these ideas and I just haven't had the time now, uh, or the discipline, the discipline probably more than the time. Uh, but then, you know, I, I would, I would want to write more of a book like, like Narnia. It, that is, trying to form people's worldview in a Christian sort of right. way, that would be my impulse. But then it seems like if uh, we have a very, like the looser the definition of this is, the the more it would lead me to think, well, um, uh, you know, I go to school for writing or whatever else. And, and that's, it, it would lead me to a secular path kind of, Secular, it lead me towards secularization. Yeah, meaning, I, try to keep, I, keep God out of it, so that it won't be. Uh, don't don't make it intentionally Christian in any way. Try to keep it more secular. So, like the Lecrae thing. I mean, like when Lecrae said he was an artist that happens to be a Christian. I thought, man, fail facepalm. You know what in the world's going on right. here? Like this is one step away from apostasy. But then, under a certain logic, it's like, um, well. Hey, he did the right thing then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I follow what you're saying. Yeah, he did the right thing. something, but, but yeah, if ahead. there's right, if there's some point at which this becomes ministry, then suddenly you know it's regulated by the Dorian principle, and so you know in order to avoid that, you want to make sure that there aren't too many biblical themes, etc. Um, you know, there's not too many Bible verses sprinkled on this T-shirt. There's not too many. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I see what I, I certainly see what you're saying. Um, I think considering, and I did not use this language in the book, but I think considering just the the term essence, you know, what is the essence of this? Is the essence of this to proclaim the gospel or is it to entertain? And then secondarily, you know, I'm going to decorate this with gospel themes. I think that helps us think through these things because as I said, you know, God created this world good. And so, uh, you know, his, his thumbprint is on everything. And when you, and when you, say good words you know you're going to you're going to include uh biblical <laughs> ideas right. even the even the pagan does that whether he realizes it or not um right so but no uh, that's yeah, that's I think, fair i think that's that, that that kind of clarification i would say it it puts me at ease significantly because i i mean those are um that is that is the kind of feel that I, you know that's the kind of thing that i feel like um well, surely Lecrae was wrong, you know, <laughs> like, or, or surely that wasn't the, I mean, surely that wasn't the, uh, like, we all know that that was one step away from apostasy and uh, Lauren Daigle and everything else. And, but then right. like, is that integrity, you know, is, uh, you know, like it, it through another view. And so I, I think that kind of the essence of it, what is the main thing of it is a helpful qualification that um, I would say uh, helps me to, interact with the application in a helpful way. So I appreciate that. Just to respond to a little more of what you were saying about, uh, you know, every square inch. Um, Certainly, you know, I agree with some of those sentiments. Uh, (laughs) Every square inch is the Lord's, absolutely. But uh, yeah, if if you have so embraced those ideas that you really cannot distinguish between 
uh, what's holy and what's uh, not holy and what's sacred and not sacred. Um, yeah, you begin to uh, suddenly things like the regulative principle of worship has no meaning. Um, uh, you know, suddenly, well, uh, why would you worship God on Sunday if every day is the Lord's day and no day is holy and, you know, and every day is equally holy? You know, there's just all kinds of uh, odd questions you have to deal with if you can't make some distinction. And here, you know, Jesus does give us this distinction between co-labor and reciprocity. It has to apply somewhere. And so we have to be able to distinguish between something that's ministry and something that's not ministry. Well, I was definitely trying to provoke a response with all that just to see if I could get a reaction out of you. So I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it's, I guess yeah, well, it's, is it safe? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And if go I ahead. could just add to that, and, and this is very tangential, but it's something I've seen a lot here in Silicon Valley. And if I had the time, this is so far down on my list of priorities, but if I, I had the time, I'd study it. But a lot of the Christianity here is very much uh, embracing a, a sort of reconstructionism, but it's a weird charismatic one. And I think that the path a lot of people take is they come out to this area uh, in order to, you know, change the world. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the clips from the show Silicon Valley, the HBO show, but that's one of the jokes is that all these companies are claiming to change the world. And so, uh, you know, young people come out here to do these, uh, you know, very creative jobs where they're going to change the world. And then they realize that their work becomes an idol. And if they discover the faith or they, uh, or maybe they've been in the faith for a long time and they realize that their work has become an idol, they don't know how to deal with that. They don't know if they should go become missionaries. Um, and, uh, and so they, they discover this theology of work that's uh, common out here where people um, basically end up making the work a new idol, but one that's honoring to God because, <laughs> because by doing right, this right. good work, you're, you're furthering the gospel. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it, it's an odd thing where, where I think people turn the work into a, into a new idol. And this is so pervaded the, uh, the charismatic circles around here. That, are you familiar with Bethel Redding? The, oh, right, uh, yeah. Yeah, Bill Johnson, et cetera. So they now not only have a school of prophecy, but even a school of technology. So this is this is like a real thing that's happening out here, and I can't quite put my finger on on where it's all coming from or why it's here. Do they have a school of grave sucking yet? <laughs> <laughs> I think for right now, that's just one of the classes they offer. Okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> oh. um, and now going back to your... Uh, your comments on essentially essence. I'm assuming it's it's pretty safe to say that that's basically part of what's guiding your understanding uh, when it comes to, I guess, uh, maybe not like your definition of ministry, but then whether or not certain things fall under the definition of ministry. So, like for example, you know, the uh, not just the person writing a book saying, "Hey, I want to write this book to teach people." whatever it is I know about the Bible in the same way you would say, Hey, if, if, if a group sat down and wrote songs and said, Hey, we want to write these to be worship songs. Um, essentially the essence of whatever they come up with is meant to worship God and meant to, uh, direct others to worship God. And so whether, whether it's, played at some random church on a Sunday and that group gets paid because of the way that uh, copyright licenses work uh, in our country or they're playing it 
someone individually is deciding to play it on Spotify, you would say, is it safe to say that you would say both of those are violations of the Dorian principle in a way that if a Christian, you know, a group of people who were all Christians and decided to write something that was inspired um, by biblical themes, but then wasn't directly meant to be worship, that would not be in violation of the Dorian principle. Is is that fair? That's correct. Yeah, and uh, just one caveat to that: in Appendix C, I think I don't think many people read the appendices, but in Appendix C. I disclosed. I actually did read those. Okay. I, I was really interested in all of that stuff, and, and I was wanting to ask about some of that if we had time. So this is this is good that you're going there. Yeah. So I disclosed a little more of my um, my theological thoughts on copyright. Uh, so in the in the body of the book, I claim that to leverage the power of copyright, um, you know, and to use the the violent power of government basically to enforce your copyright. Uh, violates the Dorian principle if you're doing it over ministry. And then in Appendix C, I go further, and this is outside of the context of the Dorian principle, and I make a very short argument there that, in general, I don't think copyright is a is a real right, nor should governments um, enforce it or uh, or create such categories. So I, I do generally have a problem with the way people use copyright uh, outside of ministry. But barring that, no, I don't. So let's just say we were talking about performance Right, and they, uh, you were paying these musicians to come and to, to do something for you. Um, I don't think there'd be any problem with that, um, for if they're entertaining. However, yeah, if they're writing a worship song, and it's designed to be sung in, uh, in a worship service, I think one of the worst examples of the commercialization of Christianity right now is is the whole marketplace that exists in the CCLI. You know this this worship tax that you have to pay in order to sing the songs that Christians want to sing in order to worship God. That's a that's a real shame and a real. Uh, I think it reflects very poorly on Christ that we're that we're charging each other in this way, and not only charging each other, but you know essentially threatening legal repercussions if you don't pay up. Like that's a violation of First uh, Corinthians six as well. I had a couple questions related to that. Harrison, do you have anything you want to follow up with? I have two questions I have left and then um, that I that are curiosities, but I, I I really want to pick Conley's brain about. But do you have any follow up on that, Harrison? That yeah. Yeah. I, um, well, I really the first one's just kind of a comment and probably really it's just an agreement in the sense that it's always felt weird to me that worship music is handled the way that it is uh in our country and and i don't i don't really know the history of it and how we really got where we are right now but yeah it's essentially what you're saying where hey all right so you want to play um you know whatever the the most popular well-known worship song is uh during a sunday then essentially what you need to do is you've got to pay money to a bunch of people. So it's not just like, hey, acknowledge that they wrote this. Uh, you know, give them credit. Give them credit for authoring the song. It's actually no, pay them money to be able to show the words uh, on a screen, right? right? Uh, yeah, and I or would, to or to print it on a page, and that just feels really icky, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, and I, I explain in the book that there is provision in U.S. copyright law for worship services. So I think a lot of a lot of people are tricked into paying the CCLI when they're 
when the CCLI is actually not providing them anything they don't already have the right to do. Now, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so none of that is legal advice, but um, but you can go read the sections that I quote there. Uh, okay. Um, well, yeah. So so I was really glad that you commented on that because it did. It, it's always felt weird to me. I think the the part that I was really torn on after reading, you know, your few set the the sections on copyright. The thing that I was really torn on was, um, I guess, this idea. And, and I'm in a weird spot right now where it's it's hard for me to push back on what you're saying uh, because I think you present some really really good arguments against copyright in general. Uh, but then there's a part of me that I, I don't, I can't exactly put my finger on what it is, but there's a part of me that still wants to say, well, hang on, maybe there's still some sort of usefulness to a copyright, um, that isn't for, uh, like some sort of financial gain or whatever. And I think it, it probably does, uh, center around this idea of authorship. So not necessarily like trying to profit an application, uh, when it comes to copyright, but just this idea of like, Hey, I, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily, um, like the idea of saying, Hey, there's this thing that I've labored over and over for, you know, hours and days, weeks, whatever. Uh, and then like, say someone just came and, and took it and slapped their name on it or something. And, and, and I don't, I don't really know what the motivation behind that is. And, and, um, I was wanting I was basically wanting to ask you all right so I've I've read what you said you already have some really strong arguments that it feels difficult to um uh, push back on but I'm still not quite there so what would you say exactly to push me over the edge and and just agree with you wholeheartedly <laughs> Sure well well I would say <laughs> that this it's is all up uh, to you Yeah <laughs> Well you know when I wrote my when I wrote my uh, thesis. This was one of the things the the board pushed back on um, my thesis committee, and then uh, also some of the feedback I got on um, some of the first drafts of my book. So I tried to harden it up a little. But part of what I'm saying there is there aren't really. So you're you're pointing out the issue of plagiarism, right? Someone slapping your name on something, and that that is a real issue. And I uh, some people take me as saying plagiarism is all right, and that's not a problem. Um, I, that's definitely not what I'm saying. I do think plagiarism is a problem. The, the problem is that copyright is this law that's designed to address a supposed Eighth Commandment violation, right? Thou shalt not steal. And people are co-opting it to address this Ninth Commandment violation issue. Uh, you shall not bear false witness, right? And you lie and you say this is yours. You present it as your own material. And so that's plagiarism. And copyright doesn't really do a perfect job of uh, preventing plagiarism because I could uh, – quote Charles Spurgeon as though it were me speaking and copyright wouldn't deal with that since all of his works are out of copyright. Or I could uh, quote President Biden and since, you know, he's a, <laughs> since uh, he's working for the government, uh, all his, all his words that are done in a governmental capacity are public domain. So um, there's all kinds of people I could plagiarize without copyright restricting me. So really what this comes down to is issues like trademark, um, you know, where you're, uh, where you pretend like you're representing an entity or not, or uh, another issue would be uh, defamation. So there are other laws that are designed to address these things, and they not, might not be perfect because people have been relying on 
plagiarism for so long, but I would be, or excuse me, relying on copyright to deal with it for so long. Uh, but I would be fine with some other law that deals with plagiarism so that we wouldn't have to co-opt copyright in this way. Mm-hmm. Okay. But now, yeah, but practically I, what should the church do? I don't, I don't know. But my thought <laughs> is that, you know, it, it has been good for the, for, for example, the King James to be proliferated so much that, you know, even though there was the Thomas Jefferson translation or the Joseph Smith translation, I don't think that those, um, in the end, uh, make it worse that the that the King James was freely available. I think it was by far better that for to be freely available. Right. Yeah. And and for people listening who are interested in reading the book, I know Conley made made a comment that you know, basically most most people probably won't read those last few sections that. I guess are kind of like a almost like an epilogue, really, uh, to the to the rest of the book. I would really recommend going and reading those because I was really I was really interested um, by those sections, and I think they really kind of pushed me in a way that I wasn't expecting to. So I, I would encourage you guys to go and and read that if you haven't. Yeah, part of why I kept that part of why I kept that different or in a different section is because um, that's not part of the principle itself. And I wouldn't want someone to get hung up on my very extreme views about copyright, which have <laughs> been developing for a, for a long time and, uh, think that they would have to affirm those if they were to affirm the Dorian principle. Um, so that'd yeah, be more, just, more gray. Things. Those yeah, would be right. more gray. Yeah. Well, so I had necessarily to... more gray, just a different issue. And I'm really trying to sell people on the Dorian principle, not oh, okay, necessarily right. my, you know, libertarian ideals or, or whatever. Sure, sure, might sure, label, sure. sure. Uh, my views on copyright as one, one other thing uh, before we, we move on that I wanted to mention, uh, Harrison, you had said something about uh, you don't know what the history is that led to things as they are now. Uh, I wanted to comment a little bit on that because even though I don't know exactly how uh, worship music has changed, I think a lot of Christians don't think too much about how copyright has changed, but for a long time, you know, there was no modern copyright law. Modern copyright law came about in 1710 with the Statute of Anne. And prior to this, authors were not paid directly for their work. There was no royalties. You know, if they added a dedication in the beginning of a book, uh, they might get uh, reimbursed for this as the person they made a dedication to was rich and wanted to support them. <laughs> but uh, but generally, authors were really wanting to get their word out. And so they would take their manuscripts to a publisher who would then, you know, want to do the secular work of printing something to to make money, and so you have the 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 work of the author producing the content. You have the work of the publisher who's um, producing the um, the product, right, that gets sold. Are are two separate works, and uh, in seventeen ten, when you have the advent of copyright law, you then have the ability of authors to uh, capitalize on their work this way. And you have the church, of course, following along in that pattern. Um, but prior to that, uh, you don't have Christian ministers um, selling books, or, or you know, it's publishers, but not Christian ministers that are selling books. Fair enough. Well, I, I had two uh, questions related to the copyright discussion, and then um, just. Uh, curiosities of mine in general these are just curiosities so just things i'm curious about but uh if harrison has anything after that then we can you can ask uh whatever you want harrison within reason and then we'll 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 wrap it up after that but uh here's so one of the things that uh related to that discussion that um 
it, I, I want to hear your impulse behind uh, your thought process. And so at, at a certain point, you seem to possibly encourage black market acquisition of pastors who violate the Dorian Principles teaching, although it seems like you're um, essentially um, saying it may not be wise, but that may be an open possibility kind of thing. And, and at certain points in the book, um, you can correct that if you're wrong, if I'm um, mistaken, but basically that's an open idea because copyright is um, is uh, uh, essentially um, not, uh, the way we view copyright today is essentially a very strange thing due to your libertarian reading, uh, leanings and all that. Is that uh, a fair statement of what you're open to the idea of possibly or something along those lines? Have I misrepresented uh, you? I'm not sure. Yeah. So I do, I do address, I, I think you're talking about like piracy, like, you know, just downloading somebody's right. work right. that they're trying to sell. Right. And so I say that, yeah, I, I pretty directly say that we shouldn't do that, but, but I guess, yeah, you're right that I, that I'm saying not out of an absolute uh, necessity, should we not do that? But out of wisdom, we should not do that. So the, the thing I appeal to is what Jesus said about the, the temple tax right? Peter asks him about the temple tax and he says, uh, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So what he's saying is, uh, you do not uh, you are not bound to pay the temple tax in in some sort of absolute way. However, uh, you know, given these other considerations, you should. And so that's essentially what I'm saying about um, about piracy. I do not think that the uh, I I do not think that there's some overarching uh, uh, copyright that that truly exists in such a way that we must absolutely obey it. However, I think that out of wisdom we should. And I find it funny because I get in these discussions about copyright with other people who feel very differently than me. But when it comes to practice, uh, I respect copyright law and they, uh, whenever it's convenient, um, don't, uh, don't break it. Yeah. And it's, it's just very hypocritical because <laughs> you would, you would think that I'd be like violating it all the time since I don't think it's some kind of absolute rule written in the sky. Uh, but it turns out, you know, I, I really do respect the government and try to, uh, avoid this at, um, you know, as much as I can. And, uh, and other people who who claim that this is a real right uh, violate it all the time. So, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I find a, <laughs> I, I find that's odd how that ends up working out. Well, yeah, I think uh, when we we both read that section and we read it together, and I was like, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's putting this in the language of wisdom or. Uh, Harrison came away thinking that it was more like a no, don't do it, and I was like, I think he's open. It sounds more like he's open to it. Maybe it's a wisdom thing, but you probably shouldn't do it. But I couldn't tell. But I, I related to that. There's a certain kind of um, uh, a, a question I, I have. Like I have a certain kind of impulse, and I, I want to know if you share this impulse or if there's um, like it feels like at times my my impulse is a little different than yours, and so uh, and I, I want to see what, what you comment on. This is just a curiosity for me. But um, uh, you know, when I when I went to I, I went to Masters College, and when I was there, MacArthur basically told all of us that, you know, we can use any of his stuff anytime we want without attribution. Like, uh, 
it, you know, it's about getting the truth out. If I said something that was helpful, get it out there. You know, you don't, I don't want to be quoted. Don't have to quote me, whatever. Right. That, that was kind of his thing. Just get it out there. And we need to get it out there and, you know, use whatever. I, if I've ever said anything helpful, go, go with it. And I, I had a professor at Southern who essentially, um, he, we, we were in one of his classes and he looked at all of us and, and like in a very, you know, serious tone of voice is kind of like, uh, you know, I I better never come visit one of your churches one day and find my seminary or these class notes being taught in your Sunday school class. That is a serious <laughs> like breach of, you know, intellectual theft. You know, uh, uh, this is intellectual property that belongs to me and I better never see it. And, and, and I will tell you my one of my best days of seminary. One of my, it was a, it was a, one of the best days, uh, you know, of seminary that I had, was when I finished that class and I walked directly from my final exam and I took my notes and I tossed them in the trash. <laughs> that, that that day, I mean, and I had a smile on my face and the, you know, the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and it was wonderful, you know. It's just like, and then I prayed, Conley. I prayed. I said, Lord, help me forget everything. <laughs> <laughs> by this man and help me learn it in another way you know <laughs> like it blotted out from my memory you know uh bring uh, you know give me someone else to tell me this stuff you know uh, he got and his I wish. Went, uh, yeah <laughs> i went along my way you know uh and i felt entirely good about it and, but then like with the idea of like ccli charging and 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 everything else like there's this impulse in me like with tim keller you know when I saw Tim Keller charging for his sermons, I mean, I read him, I wrote him off. I wrote him off. I don't have, I don't want anything to do with him at all. Like, I, I don't care. Like, you know, you, I, I'll, there's other people I'll learn from. Like, I, I don't know. I don't have, I don't even know how, what to do with that. Right. And so I'm kind of an extreme personality and those kind of things make sense to me to where, like, I look at this discussion and I'm not like, um, uh, like when I see what seems to me to be gross violations of it, that, everyone should understand kind of things like my reaction to that is hey i don't want to sing your stupid songs and i don't want to sing your <laughs> i don't want your stupid class notes and you know i'll you know i i, I want to listen to the guys who are you know um have more of the macarthur attitude now whether or not you agree with his application at every point whatever i mean but that's i'm more like drawn to like that kind of attitude is like, I want to learn from that guy. The other kind of attitude, I, I, I'm not at all. But what, like, uh, maybe you can comment on that. Like, do you share that impulse? Do you, uh, are you far more gracious than me? And, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> it um, wouldn't throw, throw the, you know, because it is true. And, you know, you know, <laughs> we, we, that kind of thing. So how do you respond to that kind of thing? Well, yeah, well, I certainly wouldn't. uh I'm pretty understanding about the fact that we live in a certain period of time where this matter is very poorly understood, and it will be a while before um, I think people can be held accountable the way they need to be held accountable on the matter. And so, uh, in part, I'm understanding about that. However, it does it does direct some of my decisions. You know, there's a reason I don't use Logos, and it's not necessarily because it's not really excellent software. It's, you know, I kind of cringe a little thinking about buying into that racket uh, because, <laughs> you know, it is a way of um, uh, charging a lot for material that is otherwise free. Um, you know, a lot of the things they they tag and they they make a new version of it. And yes, that has value, but then they, you know, will sell you um, Calvin's Institutes for 60 or $70 or um, so on and so forth. It's really, uh, it's really disturbing some of the things that they'll do. So 
You have an impulse to basically say same kind of impulse at times is what you're saying. Right, at times, yeah, and it's pretty, and it might be inconsistent, but generally I I would love to support someone who, who has a better attitude about these things. Someone in a, there's a Facebook group we've got called Money and Ministry. Um, someone posted uh, a photograph of the inside flap of an Ernie Reisinger book. I might be pronouncing his last name wrong, Ernie Reisinger. Um, and it has this author's note on the inside that says, anyone is, is at liberty to use material from this book with or without credit. In preparing this book, the writer has received help from many sources, some acknowledged, many unacknowledged. He believes the material herein set forth to be a true statement of scripture teaching, and his desire is to further not restrict its use. You know, you see something like that, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I want to support someone who who has that mindset about his work. It is there. There is something very attractive about that kind of posture, um, the, over and against the other kind of like white knuckle grip. This is mine, you know, my precious kind of thing. And so, um, the last last question I had, and uh, just curiosity wise, is um, related to the copyright and the plagiarism kind of discussion. Is I was thinking through some of these things. Um, one of the things that's been really strange to watch for me is like how a lot of famous uh, pastors seem to be going down for plagiarism uh, in a way that um, like, someone like Mark Driscoll, I mean, you just you look at his ministry for years and you're like, plagiarism, that's the thing. You know, like he loose, <laughs> like he loosely quoted like uh, in his Bible study material, he forgot to cite some sources or something like that. And we're treating it. This is like, this is what we're seeing. This is the thing that's bringing down Mars Hill and not all the other things, you know, <laughs> like, like what's going on? You know, have yeah. we lost our mind? Like what's going, you know, and then you have like uh, the Ed Litton and the J.D. Greer stuff. Like, I mean, oh, sure. I can't imagine. I can't well, imagine. Some of these, yeah. Some of these are definitely more culpable than others. You know, some some of the, the great commentaries that were written and then now are, you know, $200 a pop because the rest were destroyed or whatever and taken off the market. Uh, it was just, you know, bad note taking. And so there was not enough attribution. It, it's a real shame because none of these people really meant to pass it off on their own as their own. The the people that they're quoting probably aren't that offended. So it's a, there's certainly a reason to be concerned and there's certainly, um, there should be accountability for, for academic um, integrity. However, I don't understand why it's treated as such a cardinal sin uh, as it is. Well, I mean, I can see like there's a big difference between Mark Driscoll and his th- scenario. Like, uh, well, there's a bunch of different cop- there's a bunch of different plagiarism things going on. But one sure. of the charges yeah, the was like the was Bible stuff. The, the Lytton <laughs> stuff. I mean, where you're sitting there, like you, I, I don't know if they Telling got someone that else's from personal story I mean, that's as though nuts. it happened to I mean, you. <laughs> Like the thing with that is it's integrity, like that's integrity. And it's just like, do you even know how to study a Bible on your own, man? Like, what are you doing? Like, so I get that. But then like at the same time, it's just like you're quoting like the Bible whispers about like sexual sin. Like that's not the bigger offense. Like the right. bigger offense is not like what you're quoting. You know, is it's the fact that like, uh, and so like I, I'm just wondering though, like related to uh, the like, just talk a little bit about like how you like. It seems like we <laughs> there's some scenarios where you just wonder like that's the thing that got everyone riled up was the plagiarism, but then there's so many other things that are just so like uh, <laughs> yeah. Big, you know, it's like, why aren't you see that? You know, so do you have any comments like related to your copyright discussion and those uh, related to those kind of matters and how um, 
you know, we should think about some of those things. No. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think I have too much to add to that other than boy, it's, it's humbling to see how, uh, <laughs> how much people have had to, um, pay for making mistakes in this area. Um, hmm. but yeah, it, is, it, is that good or bad? That, well, <laughs> I guess it's good and bad. I mean, there should be academic integrity, but at the same time, I I don't know why it's elevated so much higher than than other scandals. Like like you're pointing out, um, that one hasn't. I haven't totally figured that one out. I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, with the uh, conflation of the eighth and ninth commandment, as I as I mentioned before. Um, you know, people see this as more than just a, a poor representation of the truth; that they see it as stealing. And, and I think that that makes them see it as a, a far greater sin than I've, than I would necessarily see it as, even if I still see it as a, as a problem. Sure. Do we got anything, Harrison? Yeah. I, uh, I just had a few questions and, and they might kind of be all over the place, just trying to cover some things that, um, some, some are, I'm just wondering about specifically, but then some are maybe trying to cover some of the stuff that, that we missed earlier in the episode or something. But the first one is basically, you know, and, and maybe you did talk about this. Like I can't quite remember right now, but, um, it's easy to, it's easy to kind of point out, as you say in the book, a few different times, it's easy to point out the, the obvious offenders to the Dorian principle, right? So the clear prosperity gospel guys, the guys that are praying for the next jet, Right. Uh, Everyone, no one has an issue with pointing out any of those guys as false teachers and, and, um, you know, who are consumed with financial, uh, with greed for financial gain and, and whatnot. But then um, it seems like in your book, your basic, your, your claim is essentially that the Bible teaches it's not just those guys. It's, it's everyone. And, or not everyone. It's anyone who is who is charging uh, uh, for the proclamation of the gospel, who is who is ministering to people and charging for it. And the Bible is actually telling us that that's part of how we identify false teachers. As we we look around and we say, "Hey, who is actively trying to uh, make money off the gospel directly from the people that they're trying to minister to?" Is that fair to say yeah it is and yeah i think a lot of people have the idea that it's okay to peddle the word as long as it's a good word but um, <laughs> when you say it like that it becomes obvious wait that's not what scripture is saying it's really saying that peddling the word is, is wrong okay um so so just to take that a little step further and put you kind of on the spot in a way that i'm i'm sure you're perfectly fine with um <laughs> <laughs> when so like i said it's not just the the obvious offenders technically according to the dorian principle and and what scripture teaches it's even the vody bockums the john macarthur's the uh 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 john piper's you know all of those guys are they are they in violation of this as well uh I would say yes, but I, I would definitely want to throw a caveat out there for um, for John Piper, because John Piper somewhere along the line became fairly convicted about a lot of the things that I'm talking about, 
and uh, he decided from one certain point on that he would uh, always offer digital copies of his books for free, that he would no longer um, have the content be sold like that, and that he would uh, donate any royalties from his book to, uh, to uh, I forget, either Desiring God or some other charity, something like that. Now, I, I do think that's a problem to still be making royalties off these books, even if you end up donating it. But uh, there is a clear conviction there that I think he's taking a huge step forward in the right direction, especially in offering um, digitally his books for free. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, this, this um, applies to this applies to all kinds of modern people and not to, not to every single one. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who offer their teaching freely and most pastors, you know, aren't engaged in uh, this kind of commerce. Because you know they're just they're just about the regular ministry of the word, um, but yeah, I think it's a I think it's an appropriate time for reformation. And as I look at the history of the church, I think this is this is the general pattern. You see a problem develop in the church over a few hundred years, and then and then some clarity is found that that fixes it. Right? How long were people selling indulgences before Martin Luther comes up and say, "Hey, there's a problem here," and you know you have uh, the advent of copyright in 1710 and uh, since then, people begin to capitalize on intellectual property, and including gospel ministry, and that that problem develops over the last uh, three hundred years. I think that now is the appropriate time, especially with the advent of digital content. Now is the appropriate time for the church to gain clarity and reformation on the matter. Okay, yeah. So, so while the Bible is saying, "Hey, this is a way that we identify false teachers," you're essentially saying there should be. In, in our context, considering the fact that this is not something that is really talked about very much and there's probably not uh, as much clarity on the subject as maybe there should be, that means we should look at a lot of these guys who are in all other aspects you know, um, pursuing faithfulness to the gospel and, and trying uh, to share the gospel and, and minister to others as well as they can, we should look. We should look on those guys with some grace, and not just throw out everything that they've done because they, you know, they are violating this one aspect in, in the context of where we are right now. Is that fair? Right. Yes. Uh, and you're you're touching on something else, which maybe I missed you say this before, but yeah, the book the book points out that the Bible talks about the heart of false teachers, and if you either serve God or money then someone who's not serving God is serving money. And so the Bible paints this picture that the fruit you should expect to see from a false teacher is that they're going to be, uh, they're going to be greedy and they're going to essentially be charging for ministry like this. So one of the things I argue is this, this ideally would be the, the way that we discern the matter. However, just like other cultural things, um, you know, if you think about slavery, go ahead. Well, like slavery, for instance, um, it, you might have, um, uh, a scenario is this kind of where you're going with it, like where you have like um, a, a scenario where uh, something might, really bad is happening. People but then, in history with a little more understanding because uh, they were subject to different sets of temptations. Uh, with, yes, without saying possibly. that uh, they have nothing good to say ever, you know, whatsoever, right, right. or that they're all unregenerate and lost, but right. that there may be significant blind spots right. at different points in history that. We probably have here, and we'll probably have in you know a hundred yeah. years. There'll be different kind of thing. Well, while at the same time acknowledging the heinousness of their sin, 
And uh, so likewise, even today, I mean, you take something like church discipline and you think about how church discipline can be applied today compared to how it could be applied a hundred years ago. Um, you know, how much does someone have to miss church before they're so in violation of Hebrews 10, 25 that you, um, you know, that you bring them under church discipline? You know, that kind of standard is going to be very different today than it was at a different time because uh, people, there's a, just a different cultural expectation and, and level of clarity that uh, we don't have that maybe previous generations did. That's just one example that comes to mind. And I think I think it's the same thing here. Uh, you know, if I saw a Reformed pastor charge for prayers, I would, you know, they should know that that's wrong. Like, you know, culturally, you can, you can point out that there is something very wrong with this. But because they're in this environment where everyone's charging for books, even though really what's the difference between religious instruction and prayers in terms of, you know, trying to give someone the spiritual benefit. I, I don't think there is a real difference, but um, uh, there's just a different cultural expectation. So that has to be taken in uh, to account when we're trying to exercise understanding. Okay. Um, an, another kind of follow-up question to that is one thing I noticed while I was reading the book is uh, like Tim said earlier uh, in the episode, you weren't afraid to name names and um i and i appreciated that um uh one of the things i noticed was uh it seemed like uh i i can't remember everyone that you named now i know i know you talked about tim keller a little bit and and i think his uh charging for sermons but what i remember kind of taking away is you know it seems like a lot of the guys that you're you're calling out by name were um the the kind of guys that are not as favorably uh, perceived in certain in certain Christian circles, if you understand uh, what I mean. Yeah, that's a. Uh, I think that's know. a fair point because I did I did point out um, Joel Osteen, of course, and then uh, uh, Rick Warren. Um, and the reason I did that was because I could find easy data data on these larger guys than I could on some of the reformed authors I wanted to find data on. Um, and particularly those two, what I was pointing out about them is that they take no salary from their church and they only make money by their publishing ministry. And a lot of people consider that very, um, very generous, but I would argue that's the exact opposite of what the Bible is saying to do. Now I have heard, um, I, I'm willing to name names, but <laughs> but I, I don't have uh, good citations. I recall at one point uh, James White on the dividing line saying that he does this, uh, and this is when he was at his previous church, and I could not find the dividing line, but I would have been willing to to speak of him as well. And I, I mean, I consider myself a personal friend of his. Um, there's a, uh, yeah, I I'm saying these things largely to about some of these people as friends, um, uh, and some of them, you know, not. I'm trying. I'm trying not to really make it about whether or not this person is icky or not icky. Uh, it's really, yeah, I'm coming at this and what I hope people will recognize is a humble way. Uh, not, not trying to say that, um, you know, everything needs to be thrown out because, uh, everyone is, uh, in sin, but that, uh, we just need clarity on this. And yeah, it's the case that most people just don't have clarity on this. And I, I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to imply that you were afraid to, or that you, you didn't think, um, certain guys were in violation of this just because of their name alone or something. I, I just remembered reading that and, and, and wondering, 
what was the, you know, what was the reasoning behind? Uh, sure. Yeah. Who it was you talked about. And, it was the availability of the data. Um, yeah. No, that, I would that have, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I would have liked to have, uh, to brought in more from, uh, more from yeah. our camps. Okay. Uh, now another question, this is kind of changing gears a, a, a little bit. Um, but, uh, a lot of the book is focused on, uh, Paul and, and his sort of methodology, the example that he said, I know the book admits that, Hey, look, Jesus did this too. the, the old Testament prophets did this too. It wasn't just Paul, but then we have a lot of really clear and helpful examples of Paul, what he did and his reasoning behind what he did. So he, he's a really, he's really helpful when it comes to this kind of conversation. One of the, one of, and and I'm not going to ask you to, to explain everything about Paul's reasoning behind who he took money from and and who he didn't take money from. Uh, uh, You know, there's a, there's a few chapters in the book that are on that, that people can go read. And and I think you talk about it fairly, uh, uh, you know, like pretty in depth uh, for, for just like trying to start, get the conversation going and everything. I won't ask you to explain all that, but one, one aspect that I was wanting to hear a little more, from you on was this uh, Paul's interaction with the Maltese in Acts 28, where, um, you know, essentially he, he heals um, uh, Publius's father, right? His father. And, um, and, and so he begins ministering to all the Maltese through, through that healing. And then they, they provide him with, uh, you know, uh, I think resources for his travels, essentially. I don't know that it's necessarily money, but they at least give him, you know, I assume uh, the stuff to meet his physical needs. And I I was a little confused um, reading this part. Maybe I just wasn't as clear as I should have been on the passage itself, but it seemed like this was actually a really similar, if not identical situation to the Corinthian church uh, but then Paul obviously doesn't, he refuses help from the Corinthians, um, but then he doesn't refuse it from the Maltese. And so I was wondering if you, maybe you could uh, help me help me understand uh, what made those two different uh, for Paul, where, where one was going to, with the Maltese, was co-labor, uh, even though he had just shared, the, he had just ministered to them, presumably shared the gospel with them, and, and they repented and believed. But then uh, with the Corinthians, it would have been reciprocity. So could you maybe clarify that for me a little bit? Sure. So why I talk about Malta at all is because, you know, I just want to look at every example and make sure we're not missing something and make sure we have some kind of accounting for it. And so with Malta, it could almost seem like, well, they're paying him back for having uh, given them the gospel. And so I wanted to have some kind of accounting for that. Uh, the, The first thing I point out is that it's, a very abbreviated uh, passage. I don't know if this is at this point in Acts, um, Luke is just getting tired (laughs) of writing or what, but um, (laughs) it's definitely, uh, it definitely feels very uh, truncated or telescoped because you have, you have them addressing Paul as a God and, uh, and then there's never any refutation of that. You know, he never denies it or anything, but we can only assume that he would have because he's done that before. Um, So, what to, to answer your question directly, what I think the difference here between uh, 
Malta, uh, yeah, the Maltese giving him honor, what it says, which, you know, most likely implies material gifts uh, and the Corinthians is that the Maltese are doing this as Paul is going on. They're supporting him in his journey, in his travel. And Paul in first and second Corinthians expresses a willingness to do that with the Corinthians in first Corinthians 16. And in second Corinthians one, he says that he hopes to come to them so that they can support him on his way using the Greek word perpempo, which implies uh, financially sending him on his way. So he actually, he actually expresses a willingness to do that to, for the Corinthians or to have them do that for him. What he's rejecting in first and second Corinthians is instead a, a repayment for having planted the church that has nothing to do with his further travels. Um, and so that's, that's how I see what's going on in Malta is that this has to do with Paul's travel, not with his uh, ministry there. Well, okay. Maybe we can um, go ahead and just transition into uh, just some final thoughts about the book in general. Uh, maybe, maybe you could start us Harrison, just tell us what you thought uh, was really helpful about it. And then I'll yeah, go. Can, and I then say one, can, can I say one thing before yep. uh, you all give your thoughts? One one impression a listener might have listening to this, uh, you know, two hour conversation where you all have uh, given me some compliments <laughs> about how you know in depth and stuff it was. This is not a. Uh, I, I don't want someone to come away from this conversation and think that it's um, a, a really hard deep read. I tried to keep it pretty uh, light and concise, and I think most people find that it's fairly quick to get through. Um, so I, I just want to throw that out there so that no one's intimidated <laughs> to read it. I really tried to make it uh, accessible. Yeah, I felt I, I felt personally like it was. I, I felt like it was, uh, uh, I think I was more indicating uh, along the lines of it's comprehensive in the right. sense yeah, that you're no, dealing I, I, with the passage, but, which I thought was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the compliment. I just thought, yeah, just want to make sure no one no one gets the wrong impression. <laughs> a Greek yeah, word well, every you, few seconds, you know, a Greek word every other minute, and it's just <laughs> a different language, you know. <laughs> um, well, you know, overall, um, it's it's funny because Conley, we I actually think you and I might have met in person before. I'm not I'm not entirely sure because I can't I can't remember. It, it would have been such a brief interaction. We said we were at G three. And uh, I remember someone was there handing out um, your book and I, I can't remember if it was you. I remember it was, it was a guy who handed it to me. I just, I can't remember what he looked like. I, or anything I was pretty I was aggressively kind of handing by. out my books. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I was so, there with a the team and they were doing it too, but it was probably me. Right. Yeah. And so, so it, we probably met, have met in person and we just didn't really realize it. And I remember I walked away and, I kind of read the front and the back and, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I kind of, you know, briefly looked at it and I was like, ah, uh, you know, maybe I'll read this one day, you know? <laughs> and then, and then I just, I really didn't think much more about it. But then when you reached out to us and, uh, and asked if, if we would be willing to have you on and talk about this, you know, obviously I, I wanted to go back and, and read what uh, you had said, and so that I could I could at least have some idea of what we we're going to talk about. Uh, and as I as I was reading it, you know, I think one of the thoughts I had is is you know, and again, this is to my shame, but oh, this actually isn't crazy, right? And and um, and that's not meant to be an insult towards you. That's just more meant to kind of expose my own. Um, 
you know, unwillingness to, to really hear someone talk about this. But as I read the book more and more, I think you, I think you just present a lot of ideas that are, that are, um, I've never really thought about, uh, as, as much as I think you have. And I don't think I've created categories in my mind, um, in the same way you have. And so reading your, reading your book, um, it was helpful in starting to form some of those categories that I think I'm still wrestling through in a lot of ways. And and I'm sure you probably hear that a lot when, when people tell you that they've read your book is, is, um, that they're still trying to figure out what it, what exactly does this mean for me in terms of my trying to obey God and everything that he's commanded so that I can give him the glory that he deserves. And, and so I, I think it's been very helpful in providing at least uh, categories for a beginner when it comes to, um, uh, you know, th- this aspect of, of trying to remain faithful. And so I was really appreciative of that. And I w- like I said earlier in the episode, I was really, I was really intrigued um, by your comments on copyright. And I, I think, uh, you know, that part I'm, I'm, I'm less sure about than everything else. But then I also admit at the same time, I really don't know what my argument against your view of copyright would even be. Sure. Um, well, that's why it's in the appendix, and, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was really appreciative, appreciative of it overall. And so, so thanks for, you know, writing it and, and, you know, it helps too that you didn't charge anything for it. That definitely would have hampered the <laughs> the message of the book a little bit, I think. Sure. Yeah, you said, you're, right. you said you're glad it wasn't uh, something that was crazy. If you kind of thought it might be crazy at first, I was, I was honestly worried before I started getting feedback from this, I was worried someone was going to read it at G3 and we were going to get kicked out <laughs> because you know, if the, if the reception of it's poor and, and you know, it, it really is, um, it really is challenging, you know, calling a lot of people to repentance. A lot of people who were there present mm-hmm. at G three, you know, to repentance. One of the one of the examples. Yeah, I mean, you're I handing the you're handing the book out right in the middle of yeah. everyone you, profiting you, off their you book pulled sales. A, <laughs> you pulled a Mark Mark Driscoll there on the Strange Fire Conference. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm giving my. I had this elevator pitch down where I would, where I would tell people some examples of. How, uh, how how this is violated, and, and I'd say, you know, some people want to charge you fourteen ninety nine to listen to their uh, gospel conference that's happening right now, for example. And... Hey, how did you get away with pulling a Mark Driscoll? How did you, how did you do it? Yeah, well, if the conference had been any longer, maybe I'd been found out. Oh man. Uh... Well, no, I appreciated the book. I, I, uh, I, I had, <laughs> I listened, my first exposure to it was listening to you, uh, speak with AD. And I came away from that conversation thinking, man, I have, I have a lot of questions. And then uh, that, uh, I, I agree with the main premise, but I have, I just, I ended up, he, he's definitely pushing me to think further than, and I, it's an issue I've thought about over the years uh, a lot, but then it's just, I, you know, never written a thesis on it or anything else. But, but the thing is, uh, it, I, I thought to myself, man, I, I just, um, there's some questions I'd like to ask Conley about that just to 
see what he thinks about it when I when I listen to that interview and having no idea that you know we'd have a podcast with you or that wasn't even on the radar as far as that goes. But uh, I got I, we got a few of them out. We tried to give you the easiest ones we could, Conley. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take uh, the hard ones. I might not be able to give you answers. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I I, uh, I appreciate the answers and I I appreciate um, I, I it, it, it's always um, you, you know it. It's always encouraging to me when you see a person, you know, they they take a, a controversial stand, but they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. Uh, you know, no pun intended, uh, as far <laughs> as that goes. And so, I appreciate you know, I appreciate you um, giving you know giving your book out for free. And I, I was I was encouraged by AD uh, what he did with that as well. And I thought, well, you know, that's uh, we need more of that. Uh, period. You know, like just simple childlike obedience uh even when it's unpopular we we need more of that uh, regardless of if everyone would draw the lines in the same place and uh as it relates to you know what what is the you know what constitutes ministry and you know what is uh, those kind of questions and related to you know very specific application we need more people you know to, that will just say hey uh, whatever god says i'll do it even if it's cost me something and that there's something that's very attractive about that so i appreciate it Thank you, thank you. Yes. Yeah, and while I'm while so, I am taking a uh, you know in a sense a radical stand on something, I don't I don't generally consider myself too much of a provocateur. So yeah, that's <laughs> not the that's not the goal here. And hopefully, you know, people who read it will realize the heart with which it's written. So so Conley, you've been a really good sport. You you've answered all our questions for two hours. The least we can do is is let you shamelessly plug. Where can people? get the book and how much does it cost <laughs> sure so yeah you can get it in just about uh any format um you know i have a, a web page where it's all displayed on a single page so you can control f which is one of the best features <laughs> and then uh yeah you can get a pdf epub kindle and that's all linked from the website which is uh, uh the dorian principle.org dorian is spelled d-o-r-e-a-n uh, there's also an audiobook which you can just subscribe to with any podcatcher that you have. Just search for the Dorian Principle and you can uh, listen to it that way. And uh, if you want the paperback, you can also order it from the website. And uh, that is free. In addition to the shipping, the publisher even covers the shipping. And the publisher, First Love Publications, they've been doing free book distribution since 2006. So this is uh, not something new to them. Uh, they've been doing this kind of ministry for a long time. And, uh, yeah, they were happy to partner with me and I'm happy to partner with them so that we can, uh, formalize this a bit better and, uh, get other ministries working in the same way. So yeah, you should also check out their, um, uh, they're part of a larger uh, ministry called first love missions. And it's, it's just a bunch of churches, uh, banding together to, uh, co-labor and fund things free of charge. Okay. Yeah, that that's awesome. Well, Conley, we want to thank you again uh, for coming on and, and answering all our questions. And we want to thank our listeners for uh, listening through. And, and we encourage you guys to go out and get this book and, and read it for yourselves. And uh, we'll see you guys on the next episode of Bible Bashed. Thank you. This has been another episode of Bible Bashed. We hope you've been encouraged and blessed through our discussion. We thank you for all your support and ask you to continue to like and subscribe to Bible Bashed and share our podcast with your friends and on social media. Please reach out to us with your questions, pushback, 
and potential topics for us to discuss in future episodes at BibleBashedPodcast at gmail.com. Now, go boldly and obey the truth in the midst of a biblically illiterate world who will be perpetually offended by your every move. Thank you.